Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm uh, Manny Emanuel. We've got a case of the giggles over here. <laughs> it's <laughs> First of all, it's late, so it, I'm so tired that everything is funny right now. And Manny also serenaded me with a nice burp right before hitting record. So I'm I'm just recovering from the giggles. Can't prove it. I can't. You're right. You're the one who has the record button. Yeah, want to bet? It's my word against yours. <laughs> uh, we are talking about... The Godfather tonight. Uh, never heard of it. I'm looking forward to figuring out exactly what it's about. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Uh, I guess this is, uh, we're, we're talking about maybe making this an installment in like a classic film series. Yeah, potential. Classic, classic film series. You know, we have our hidden gems and guilty pleasures, our top 10 lists, our, you know, our year retrospectives. I, I think yeah. I'm going to slide this into, we'll just call this part of our classic film series. Exactly. So we talked about Casablanca, I think last month, technically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, The Godfather is a good good jumping off point, and uh, there's going to be more of that in the future. But uh, before we get into it tonight, uh, Manny, can you please tell the people where they can find us on social media if they wish? Yeah, they can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. They can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast. They can email us at sammanymoviepodcast at gmail.com, and they can follow, like, and subscribe to us wherever they get their podcasts. Manny, what have you been playing on that beautiful TV this week? I watched five films, and they ran the entire gamut of enjoyment. So let's start on the low end. <laughs> As I uh, did last year, I decided to, you know, polish off uh, some of the film series that I had uh, had started and stuff like that. Uh, much to my dismay, I realized that I hadn't finished the uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean series. I still have one more to do with that, but that's not the one I watched. Uh, this is one that I was uh, actively dreading uh, to watch because uh, the reviews were bad, and the series as a whole uh, hurts my heart. And that series is the X-Men franchise um, from Fox. So I watched uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix. Uh, have not seen. My experience with X-Men, as you know, is uh, is very limited. I haven't seen the originals. I've basically only seen First Class, uh, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse? that's it. Apocalypse? What's that? Have you seen Apocalypse? I haven't seen Apocalypse. I have seen Logan, but I haven't seen Apocalypse. Okay. Well, I, I, when I say for the like the X-Men franchise, I'm kind of keeping the Wolverine films out of them, mm -hmm. as well as the Deadpool films. I'm talking the X-Men film series. So that's X-Men, X-Men 2, X-Men 3, The Last Stand, X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men Apocalypse, and X-Men Dark Phoenix. Now, I grew up reading the comics, so... These movies mean a lot to me. The MCU means a lot to me because I was a fan of Marvel, but I didn't really collect many of the comics of the characters that are in those movies. The X-Men comics are the ones that I collected and mean the world to me. And so watching all these movies hurts my heart because while their physical representations are quite accurate, it's very rare that the characters are accurately portrayed on screen with the notable exceptions of both James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart's uh, depiction of Charles Xavier, Michael Fassbender and Ian McKellen's uh, portrayal of Magneto, especially Michael Fassbender 
his Magneto is amazing. Obviously, the two standouts, which are... Okay, well, Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is perfect. The only thing is, minor quibble, and it's, it does not bother me, but it wouldn't be the nerd in me to not point it out that he is definitely taller than what the real Wolverine is. By, like, probably a good, I'd say a good eight inches. Yeah, don't they have everybody in the first few movies on lifts so uh, that he appears shorter? Is uh, that... I, I have no idea. <laughs> That's just something that I've heard, or at least um, maybe a conception that I had. And the best representation of someone in the X-Men universe is by far perfect. It's like he was born for the role, and that's Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. Yeah, definitely. Pretty much everyone else, Sam, sucks ass and is not anywhere even close to being the accurate representation of what that character is on screen. Like I said, physically and visually, they definitely do. But when it comes to the way they act and the way that they should be responding to actions on screen, they do not. And so it really, really hurts my heart. Now, for those of the people out there that watch these movies and don't have a deep affinity for the comics or don't know much about the comics, or perhaps they're able to separate the comics from the films and still enjoy these movies, power to you. I give you all my blessing and I'm so very happy for you. But for me, I want to see the characters that I grew up reading and loving accurately portrayed on screen and that hasn't been the case so i've just given in years ago like the best thing for me to the best way for me to describe it for everyone else is that fox has made some very enjoyable mutant movies they have yet to make an x-men movie that's the best way for me to describe it hmm. so going into x-men dark phoenix the dark phoenix story in the comics itself uh is incapable of being told in one film so i knew right off the bat that this was gonna suck and i was right now what i will give this film is that visually there's some really nice shots the special effects are top notch and the big set piece at the end, the big action set piece set on the train was fucking good. The rest of the movie was horseshit. It was not good. Jessica Chastain is in this movie, an actress that I fucking adore, and she is completely wasted. There's uh, just a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense. The, the movie is... Uh, it's, it's a... It's... It's not good. But if you're in the mood to watch an incredibly great action sequence, then Dark Phoenix is a great place to start. Now, I wouldn't, I'd say wait till it comes on streaming somewhere. It'll probably be on Disney Plus fairly soon. But they will have to tone it down because uh, they, they, they fucking swear a couple times in here. They don't in the previous X-Men movies? Uh, not that I remember. But, hmm. uh, there was a there was a flat-out F-bomb dropped. Is it the is it the PG-13 F-bomb, the one they're allotted? Yep. Hmm, interesting. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not really worth watching, but I I, honest, I honestly will tell you that the train sequence at the end that was just a joy to watch. Hmm. 
So Dark Phoenix gets a fucking two. Yeah, I knew that. I saw that on your letterbox, and I knew it got a two. I was excited for the for the tearing apart of the X Men X Men film. It, it's a, it's really really a shame, really a shame that this film franchise uh, failed you. It, it it dude, it it hurts my fucking heart. It, I'm not lying. Like it it saddens me to watch these movies. I watch them and I'm just like, wow. Like our the last v- film Apocalypse, fucking Oscar Isaac. He's completely wasted. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking horseshit. It's a horseshit franchise. I'm so glad that Marvel has it back. They got the rights to them, the X-Men characters now. So I'm fucking excited to see what they'll do. I don't anticipate any X-Men films for probably two to three years. So everyone can get the wash the taste out of this shithole movies out of their mouth, and then Marvel can do them right. Um. Uh, the only X-Men movie that I have watched and revisited multiple times is First Class. First Class I, is I, good. I, I quite enjoy that movie. First Class is good. Yeah. yeah. Mostly because of James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender. They, yes. they carry that movie. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Uh, the next movie I watched was at the behest of past and future guest Michael Chardulo. Ooh, behest. Good word. He has been begging me to watch this movie for quite some time. It's by a filmmaker that I respect because I love one of his films. But the two other ones of his that I've seen, I don't like at all. And nothing has led me to believe that I would like any of his other movies. Now, this movie was nominated for Best Picture and had several other nominations as well. And that movie is the 2014 Wes Anderson film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. As I started watching this movie, it was immediately clear in both the way that he uses dialogue and his incredible use of the camera, that this is the very definition of an auteur. This man is incredibly skilled as a director, and his ability to tell a story is absolutely amazing. The craft that he put into this movie is one to be admired and was worthy of every one of its nominations. But it just didn't grab me. I officially have declared myself I am not a Wes Anderson fan. The movie of his that I love is Rushmore. I fucking love that movie. The other films of his that I've seen, I want to revisit The Royal Tannenbaums because it's lauded as a great film, but I remember watching it and being underwhelmed. And the other movie of his that I actively disliked was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And, yeah, I haven't seen, so uh, the Darjeeling Limited, Moonrise Kingdom, and I feel like I'm missing one. Well, I've uh, Bottle Rocket. I haven't seen Bottle Rocket. What else? Fantastic Mr. Fox, did you say? No, I didn't count the two stop, stop motion. I haven't seen those either. Right, okay. But his live action, am I missing any? I don't live action, I... uh, French Dispatch hasn't come out yet. You said that, that. I think you got them all. Okay. 
the only only two that you didn't were the stop motion ones, like you said, okay. Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs. I do want to watch Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, but I just can't, I just can't bring myself to put them high on the watch list because I've just I'm I'm not excited about Wes Anderson films. That being said, the Grand Budapest Hotel, like I said, all the praises lauded upon it are worthy. Uh, Ray Fiennes is absolutely awesome in this movie, as is everyone else in the cast. But I just, I'm, I'm just not into this filmmaker's way of telling stories. But I see the skill. I'm not saying he's a bad filmmaker. I'm not saying his stories suck. It's just not my cup of tea. Do you remember what I said in the group chat when you posted that you were watching this? No. I responded to Manny always sends the uh, the cover art of of the movie that he's watching to the group chat. It's very fun. <laughs> and I responded to the Grand Budapest Hotel with a single word. And that word was meh. Oh, you M- right. That's right. M E H meh. That's that's my general opinion about Wes Anderson. I'm I'm glad you said what you said because I feel like a little bit less of a freak right now. To be fair, I've only seen, uh, let's see, what have I seen? I've seen Grand Budapest Hotel, I think twice now, um, or one and a half times. I fell asleep the first time. <laughs> uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, and uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. I've seen seen three of those, and I gotta say, I think all of them, even though the Grand Budapest Hotel is probably the best of those three, um. All of them, if I were to rate them, would probably get threes from me. Maybe if I rewatch the Grand Budapest Hotel, I might get a four, but I, I don't think it would. I, I think the film nerd in me would want to give it a four, but I genuinely don't think I enjoy it to a four level. Um, I actually watched The Royal Tenenbaums and The Grand Budapest Hotel in the same day, uh, back when Isolation first started. Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can thank my roommate for that. Shout out to Jordan. Uh, um, I, if I'm recalling correctly, I, I think I my favorite of the two was grand budapest hotel but i was i was whelmed i was I was neither overwhelmed nor underwhelmed i was just it was yeah okay it was a movie it's it's very quirky he's very clearly got his own style and mm-hmm. some people might find that appealing it's just it doesn't really do it for me it it's a little i don't know if it's too anything it's just it's just i don't find the comedy that's in the grand budapest hotel i just don't find it funny i don't laugh i didn't, I, I, don't. I did not audibly laugh in the grand budapest hotel i don't think i did either the story itself was certainly creative and and a fun enough ride and there's some zany characters and some good performances but i genuinely don't think i laughed out loud in the grand budapest hotel which is a problem for a wes anderson movie yes i did like i did truly love the filmmaking though like absolutely the way the camera moves his sets i love like his the costumes as well the costumes all yeah I love his special effects. Like mm-hmm. when you see when you see the like the trolley going up the hill, it's it, like yes. it's almost like a cardboard cutout. It's it's just <laughs> fucking awesome. It's very eccentric. Um, it's just not my thing. Um, by the way, uh, this is reminding me of something I forgot to say in our what we've been watching episode, which we released, I guess, last week mm-hmm. or two weeks ago, however you want to count the episodes. Um, I was going to say about the five bloods that the helicopter sequences felt like a Wes Anderson movie. And I forgot to say that <laughs> there's, there's a helicopter crash into five bloods and it feels like a Wes Anderson movie. And that's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the grand Budapest hotel, a three from me. Yeah. I, I respect it. 
Again, there are probably some very angry Wes Anderson fanboys pounding their fists right now, and I, I get it. I, I get the appeal, but yeah. I think it would get a three for me, too. And that's uh, that's Charge right now, but Charge doesn't listen to our episodes, so fuck that guy. <laughs> uh, next up, I continued uh, knocking off films for our upcoming 1995 uh, retrospective. So I watched this, uh, it's listed in IMDb as a comedy crime thriller in what I would honestly consider maybe John Travolta's, one of his top five performances. And that's a movie called Get Shorty. Uh, This is based off an uh, Elmore Leonard novel, uh, and it's written by Scott Frank, who is a writer that I truly love. Sam, you are absolutely in love with something that scott frank wrote and that's called the queen's gambit i am you're right uh scott frank also wrote uh a movie that was uh in contention for my top 20 a movie called out of sight that Mm. you you and i will be covering uh at some point very soon cool uh this movie is about a mobster who travels to hollywood to collect a debt uh, and discovers that the movie business is much the same as his current job. Uh, John Travolta plays the said gangster. The gangster's name is Chili Palmer. And he's having a lot of fun. It's not over the top. But he he is super fucking cool in this movie. And the movie's a lot of fun. I, had, I liked it in 1995. Uh, and I, I liked it, again, watching it for this uh, for this for this year it's a very enjoyable movie with a really great cast uh gene hackman renee russo danny devito delroy lindo who you just saw in the five bloods uh, james gandolfini and i think there might have been a couple other people in it uh oh dennis farina i forgot about dennis farina he's fucking awesome david pamer uh that would probably be the most well-known people it's it's totally worth watching if you ever see it on a streamer uh, and you're looking for something kind of fun and easy, uh, it's a very enjoyable movie. Uh, everybody's having a really great time. It's a very easy watch. has really great dialogue and above average acting. No, nobody here is going up for any awards. But it's a, it's a, very, it's a well-made movie that's a very enjoyable watch. Um, they did make a sequel to this that I am trying to remember the name of it i do remember that the rock is in it in one of his early roles got it for you if you want it uh hold on give me a second give me a second yep. no i'm gonna need the name be cool be cool thank you yeah it's uh it's a fun it's a fun movie uh i gave get shorty a three uh it's just enjoyable throughout the last two movies i watched were movies i wanted to uh get done for my 2020 top 10 lists these are part of a uh anthology film series called small acts on prime all five of these films are directed by steve mcqueen the gentleman who did 12 years a slave and the first one i watched is called lover's rock very easy watch it's an hour and 10 minutes uh, the movie is about uh, a single evening at a house party in 1980s West London. Sets the scene developing intertwined relationships against the background of violence, romance, and music. The movies are about the 
immigrant, uh, the black immigrant experience in the United Kingdom. And this movie is, I, th- I think they're from like Trinidad and Jamaica and all that. So they have that very thick Caribbean accent that at right. times I found hard uh, to discern what they were saying. But Lover's Rock is a really enjoyable movie. A very easy watch. It's 70 minutes. It's worth checking out. It's It, it was fine. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it did make some top 10 lists uh, from some podcasters and some list makers that I enjoy. I can see why they enjoyed it so much. But uh, for me, it was just a, an easily enjoyable film. I gave it a 3. There's nothing that really stood out for me on either end. It was just a kind of a right down the middle of the road, well-made movie. But Sam, the last one I want to talk about um, is Mangrove uh, in the same anthology series. The movie uh, Mangrove tells the true story of the Mangrove Nine who clashed with London police in 1970. The trial that followed was the first judicial acknowledgement of behavior motivated by racial hatred within the Metropolitan Police. I want to tell everybody that's listening, and especially to you, Sam, everybody needs to watch this movie as soon as humanly possible. Spoiler alert for my list. This will easily be in my top five of the year. Possibly even top three. This movie is an absolutely tour de force from everyone involved. It's an expertly crafted film with amazing performances. The movie is hard to watch at times because it obviously it deals with racial tensions and obviously with everything that the world has experienced, especially in the United States with the Black Lives Matter. This movie is extremely relevant and it is so expertly made. It... Uh, This movie is a courtroom drama about racial injustice and people standing up for what they believe. It's actually made The Trial of Chicago 7 seem like a lesser film to me. Wow, that's That's high praise. That's how good this movie is. And again, I, I, I honestly can't stress this enough for anybody that's listening. Please watch Mangrove. It is on Amazon Prime. It is in the small axe, and if you're wondering what I'm saying, it's axe as in the, uh, the the thing that chops down wood. A-X-E. Small axe. I think this is episode one in it. Um, it's a little bit longer. It's two hours, two hours and seven minutes. It flies by. It is an absolute treasure to watch, Sam Mangrove. Uh, it was hands down a five for me. Really? Hands down a five. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that when you say it makes Trial of the Chicago 7 look like a lesser film, one that we really both enjoyed. Yes. I think we both gave Trial of the Chicago 7 a five. This is, for me, this is the, like, here's the, here's the difference. Uh, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the Trial of the Chicago 7. But the Trial of the Chicago 7, for me, when you watch, after you watch Mangrove, the Trial of the Chicago 7 becomes... <laughs> And I do not mean to diminish the film, but this is the easiest way. The Trial of Chicago 7 becomes an entertaining law, uh, tr- like trial movie, courtroom movie. Mangrove is the kind that you tell your friends about. 
Wow. Like this is it, this is a powerful film that has you thinking about change and how you want to help change the world and you respect these people for what they did and what they stood up to. It, it's it's unfucking believable. Damn. Okay, well, it has obviously just been skyrocketed to the top of my to my watch list. I now have a fuck ton of movies on there. I think seven of them are from 2020, and we're releasing our top 20 in like a month, <laughs> I think, or not, our top 10. Excuse not, me. Not even. Yeah, not even. Like I, I, think... I guess the listener for the listeners, it'll probably be a month. Oh no, because oh, it'll be about time is an illusion. Don't about, worry about it. It'll be about three weeks from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's a couple of movies coming out this. Well, there's one coming out this Friday. I'm excited to watch uh, One Night in Miami, and. I think uh, I think there's a couple other ones, Promising Young Woman and Pieces of a Woman that I still want to watch. Mm. Uh, Minari and Nomadland, they don't, they're not going to become available before we make our list, so that sucks. And I think there's about two or three other ones that I want to get done. Um, what is it? Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah and uh, shit. Uh, Malcolm, Malcolm and Marie. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, those are all films that I don't think I'm going to be able to get to before we have to do our top 10 list. Do you want my... I, I have eight films on my watch list from 2020. Uh, do, do you want me to just give them to you right now and you can tell me what I need to watch? Yeah. <laughs> what I need to prioritize? Yeah. Okay, so this is just in order of release. So most recent first. Okay. Um, so uh, Mangrove is now the most recent on there. Okay. On the Rocks, Another Round, The Devil All the Time, The Way Back... Uh, what is that one? Palm Springs, uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and uh, a movie that you and I haven't talked about called Bad Education, which is listed as a 2019, but a couple of film reviewers I've watched have listed it as a 2020. Uh, yeah, I think it is a 2020. If you, mm-hmm. if you want my honest opinion on what you should prioritize, mm-hmm. if you text me that list, I'll put them in the order that you should watch them. Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> I would, but you're saying I, Mangrove is probably number one of those eight? Yeah, and I would put Palm Springs at number two. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Those those two are ones that you must watch 100% before you do your list. Okay. Like, without a shadow of a doubt. If you don't, you're doing yourself a disservice. Okay. And uh, Mangrove is on what service? Sorry. Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Beautiful. And that's... Pretty good list. Like you said, you ran the full... <laughs> the full dynamic experience of enjoyment from very little to a whole hell of a lot. Yes. I, on the other hand, only watched movies I enjoyed this week. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a good week. Um, a little bit irresponsible of me, but I knew I was going to have to rewatch Soul before I made my 2020 list because placing it was going to be uh, an issue because it was one that I really enjoyed, uh, but I had my issues with. If you listened to our What We've Been Watching episode, I think that was episode 136. If you listen to that episode, you probably heard me complain about Soul an awful lot in very spoilery fashion. I probably won't dissect it too much, but I did rewatch it this week. Mm-hmm. Um, upon rewatch, I feel comfortable where I have it placed in my top 10. I am not yet going to reveal where I have placed it in my top 10. What? Of course, of course I am not. Um, but Soul is still just a, a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, the... I still believe its animation is some of the best that we've seen. Um, 
the soundtrack is some of the best that we've heard, not just in the jazz sequences, but in the uh, the, the little bit more uh, dreamlike score by uh, Reznor and Ross is gorgeous. It, it's one of my favorite scores in a Pixar movie ever. Um, and it is a heartfelt, at times heartbreaking and always thought provoking movie. It's almost too mature to be a kid's movie. Um, it's there's a lot going on. But I have my problems with the ending. It's I, I'm going to keep it at four out of five, uh, not exclusively because of my problems with the ending, but uh, I, I feel I feel quite strongly about it. If you want to know my the exact details of that, you can go back and listen to that episode, episode one thirty six, and I talk about it at some point in that sea of an episode. <laughs> it is a it is a big one. We had been watching a lot. Um, I think there's also there's elements in the middle where I, I think on second watch I didn't chuckle quite as hard. There's um, and I'm not gonna say this in a spoilery way, uh, but Manny will understand this. There's a sequence with a cat in the movie, um, which actually lasts quite a long time. And in my opinion, I, I kind of had my suspicions about this on first time, but I've confirmed my suspicions that for my taste, it lasts just. A touch too long just uh, they get a little more mileage out of it than they maybe needed to um but all of that stuff aside a ton of laughs a ton of gorgeous animation both in its variety and its quality uh a fantastic score um a tear-jerking scene of our protagonist joe playing a piano at the end um with some voiceover stuff happening uh, your classic pixar cry moment it's fantastic uh, i think soul is absolutely worth a watch for anyone out there uh, but it's still just a four out of five for me. It's it's only short of exceptional. <laughs> hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Um. So having watched Soul and having bitched about how its ending should have been better last week, it inspired me to revisit another movie that I think is just shy of being exceptional, uh, minus some problems with the ending. And that's a movie that you and I have talked about quite a bit over the years, and I have always been putting off re-watching and I finally got around to it. That's Bridge of Spies, the Steven Spielberg movie. Ooh. This was nominated for Best Picture in 2015. Let's see if I have the plot synopsis pulled up. I do. Uh, During the Cold War, an American lawyer is recruited to defend an arrested Soviet spy in court and then help the CIA facilitate an exchange of the spy for the Soviet-captured American U-2 spy plane pilot, Francis Gary Powers. So, uh, Sorry, you want to say something? I was going to say, isn't the plot of the movie Tom Hanks wants to nap? Yeah, <laughs> that, that's literally it. The, the plot of the movie is Tom Hanks has a cold and wants to go home, <laughs> except he can't because he's in East Germany. <laughs> um, this is a great movie. It is yeah. absolutely, it's, it's a, I really enjoyed it on rewatch. Uh, Mark Rylance as Rudolph Abel got, uh, I think, I think he got the Oscar for supporting actor, if I'm recalling correctly. He did. Totally deserved in retrospect. He gives a, uh, a performance which, uh, I think at the time I watched it, I worried was in danger of being ignored at the Oscars. So when I watched this in 2015 for the first time when it came out, I was like, oh, that's a great performance, but it's not going to get acknowledged. Of course, I was wrong. He would go on to win the award. But he gives such a reserved, quiet um, performance. He's a guy who never worries. He's a guy who uh, is being put on trial uh, for potentially death. Uh, for being a Soviet spy in the middle of the Cold War. And he just, uh, he, he has a very fun, optimistic demeanor about him in uh, in spite of it all. Maybe that's maybe that's overselling his, uh, his demeanor, but he is, uh, 
what's a good way to put this? He's just aloof. He's just not worried about anything. He's just he all he wants to do is smoke and draw in prison. He's he's a lot of fun. Tom Hanks is of course Tom Hanks. He's one of our finest living actors. Uh, nothing. <laughs> nothing above and beyond what we see in some of his Oscar winning roles, but he is, uh, is of course exceptional. Steven Spielberg for my money is, I mean, he's the best at a lot of things. He's clearly one of our finest living directors. There's nothing special that I can say there. One of the things I picked out about his direction that I really liked on this watch was he is someone who knows how to use light in a movie like nobody else. Uh, the, the use of light and dark in this movie, it looks like an old-fashioned film noir at times. Even even the little moments he doesn't waste, a moment of Tom Hanks stepping out to hail a cab in the rain looks like a fucking poster. It looks like a painting. <laughs> it's just exceptional, a beam of light illuminating him perfectly on the sidewalk. Just every frame of this movie is so tediously pay, paid attention to, and that's the quality that you get uh, with a man like Steven Spielberg. Man, you want to say something? I was going to... I love that your praise for Mark Rylance was so overwhelming. So I wanted to double check and see who he beat out for best supporting actor. Sure. And, and as always was a pretty stacked field. And I'm curious if you know the other four that he beat out for his award. Okay. I'm tr this was the first year that I watched all the Oscar movies. So I really shouldn't have any excuse for not remembering it. Um, I'm going to say Tom Hardy, Revenant. Correct. Um, oh, God, what else was there? Um, I think J.K. Simmons was that year, but he was no. lead. No, that, that's well, the year before. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, because well, J.K. won. Wait, he was also... Uh, oh, no, he wasn't lead, or no. was he? I no, can't remember. that's the supporting, supporting. role. He's, J.K. Oh. wasn't the lead of Whiplash. Yeah, I forget that even though it's one of my favorite movies, Miles Teller, I, I have in in the supporting role in my head, even though I know he's the lead <laughs> because J.K. Simmons is just that good. I'll give them I'll give them to you. Yeah, sure. OK, so Christian Bale for the big short. Right. Tom Hardy for The Revenant, Mark mm. Ruffalo for Spotlight and mm. Sylvester Stallone for Creed. Oh, I oh, I forgot Sylvester Stallone was nominated. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't have gotten that if you had let me uh, hum and ha and uh and delay for long enough i may have gotten mark ruffalo <laughs> but uh but yeah I, I i personally i think that's a good win i think mark rylance winning for that is uh is a good one i don't know about you i think at the time i think at the time i wanted tom hardy to win but I, only because i was a big i was and continue i was and continue to be a huge nolan fanboy and hardy works with him a lot of course i wanted stallone to win for creed mm-hmm yeah, that's one I have on my rewatch shelf right now. I have a big shelf full of Blu-rays where I'm like, prioritize these movies when you get a chance, and Creed is on there. But, of course, the shelf is full of a zillion movies, so I can't really say. Um, Breacher Spies is also a movie that's exceptionally funny. Uh, the Coen brothers have a writing credit on it, which is awesome. I have to imagine they had a hand in the dialogue in particular because it's just a very zippy very funny movie and tom hanks's character is a, is a very funny guy um i had a great time with richard spies my only complaint about it as i alluded to off the top is the ending and i've complained to manny about this ending before uh for the listeners who may not have heard me talk about it i'll try to describe it in as few spoilers as possible uh, the movie is about thematically it is about doing the right thing and it is about doing the tough job that nobody else wants to do, even when the entire world is telling you it's wrong. It's about sticking to your convictions 
and doing the right thing no matter what, even if your life is endangered, even if your family is endangered, yeah, you have to do the right thing. The ending has it just teed up to, to have an exceptional ending that, that hammers that point home and they cop out of it. In my opinion, they cop out and, and, and sort of, they they reverse back they they backpedal a little bit on that message on that messaging in my opinion that's as specific as i can get unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) because i really don't want to spoil this movie because it is really really good and it's a fantastic effort by steven spielberg i'm very glad it got nominated the year that it did um but much like soul bridge of spies is just a step shy of being exceptional so it also gets a four excellent I don't suppose you've revisited uh, Bridge of Spies since since it came out, hey? Oh yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Good yeah. movie, right? Fucking great movie. Yeah, <laughs> I was happy to revisit. Uh, but I would be, uh, it would be very irresponsible of me, uh, with 2020 now in the rearview mirror. It would be irresponsible of me to not cross off a 2020 movie in preparation for our top 10 of the year. Oh, thank God. So I did cross off one that Manny recommended to me to watch, and that was Boys State. (gasps) Oh, 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 excellent, excellent, excellent. And what did you think, Samuel? So Boys State is uh, is a documentary. It's about I'm gonna see if I can maybe get this uh, plot synopsis. Here we go. A thousand 17 year old boys from Texas join together to build a representative government from the ground up. That's the plot synopsis from IMDb. This is a documentary. We follow a couple of subjects who are 17 year old boys who are basically making their own government. They're they're making their own platforms. They're making their own campaign speeches. They're making their own slogans. They're making their own social media sites. And they're all they're trying to do is get elected for these various positions in this mock government, basically. And I think it's like a week-long camp, right, Manny? Yep. Something like that. Uh, the narrative that these filmmakers managed to weave from, from that simple-sounding plot is exceptional. The... I am I'm amazed that they they must have spent so much time interviewing kids and and trying to take the pulse of who is going to do well and whatnot, because it amazes me that the kids who wind up doing well in, in this, we have the footage of them from earlier in the camp. I know. Right. right? Like, it amazes me that um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead. And, uh, can you spoil a documentary? <laughs> uh, no, no. I, th- I think as long as you don't reveal who. The, the result, the main result. Yeah, if you don't re- if you don't reveal the main result, then I don't think you're spoiling anything, really. Right. Okay. So one of the main subjects of this documentary winds up being Stephen Garza, oh. who is a kid who we w- Americans should be watching for this kid in politics in the year years to come. He was 17 at the time of the making of this movie. You need to be 35 to be the president of the United States of America. So give it, what is that, 18 years, and this man should be on everyone's radar. He, even though he is but a teenage boy at the making of this movie, he is an exceptional young man. He is somebody who built himself from the ground up. He is looking to inspire instead of divide. He is somebody who uh, always gives credit to those around him for his own success. He is, is a remarkable young man, and I am glad. I'm so glad that the documentary gave us the opportunity to get to know him. He, I was rooting for him the entire time. He, uh, so in, in the documentary and in this camp, there's all these different positions that kids can run for, and the the most coveted one is governor, since they're all from Texas. They all want to be governor. Um, so Stephen is running for governor, 
and uh, he, he uh, I won't tell you how how he does in the race, but I was fucking rooting for I was cheering and jumping out of my seat. I was so excited for this guy. Um, the other main kid, I guess, that's followed is this Ben Feinstein who, or Feinstein Feinstein. Either or. Uh, so sure, Ben. Uh, just an exceptional villain, <laughs> a fantastic villain. Uh, he is not a candidate for governor. He is uh, the speaker of one of these parties, I think, or uh, the campaign chair of one of these uh, imaginary parties. And he is somebody who is the foil to Stephen. He is somebody who is willing to play the dirty trick. He he is not interested in inspiration. He is not interested in making friends. He is not interested in bringing kids together. He wants to win the fucking election, is, no matter what. He is an exceptional politician. Yeah, it, it, he, he watching, is also somebody that will be watched for, for sure. Watching him was astounding. Yeah, Stephen strikes me as somebody that I would vote for. Ben strikes me as somebody who's better at playing the game. Yes. Like, if if this was House of Cards, uh, it's unfortunate to say, but Steven is Ned Stark. <laughs> Steven is the, the role model, you mean Game the, of Thrones? the honorable person, and Ben is... I don't know who's Ben. Are you, you you said House of Cards. Do you mean that he's... You, did you oh, Game, Game of Thrones, excuse me. Yeah, yeah Steve, Thrones, Steven you. is Ned Stark. Ben, I don't know, Littlefinger? Or... Yes, Ben is Ben is Littlefinger. I think that's a good comparison. Or, or Varys. Oh, I was gonna say or Varys. Yeah. <laughs> could he yeah. could uh could even be Tyrion. That's true. That's true. Except I, T- Tyr- I think... Tyrion has a little bit too much of a good side. Yeah, Tyrion is too likable. Ben is even though it's a documentary, he's definitely the villain, I would say. He's cast as the villain in this narrative. He he is. He's oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> I, I, I was still in awe of his talent. Mm-hmm. He is... he, he's an, an exceptional politician, he... and he knows how to weave a narrative, and he knows how to whip people into a frenzy. He He's an exceptional young man as well, in his own right. Yes. So by everything you said, I take it that you enjoyed the Boy State. Yes. Uh, it, <laughs> you know what? You know what? It's really funny that we uh, we didn't get a lot of the movies that we wanted to get this year in 2020. We had a lot of delays, uh, and there was a lot of movies that we didn't get to see, a lot that we were let down by. But I feel like I watched a, I shouldn't say a lot, but I watched a few documentaries this year, which I don't usually do. I had to branch off to sort of find 2020 movies that I really like. I've seen three excellent documentaries this year, Boys State being one of them. Dick Johnson is dead. The Social Dilemma. Right. Okay. Yeah, just three really, really good documentaries this year, and I'm glad that I did. I had a great time with Boys State. Uh, I gave it a four, also. Awesome. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. I didn't. I didn't think that you wouldn't. I, I would be. I would honestly be astounded if somebody watched Boys State and was like, "Ah, oh, that was okay." Yeah, it's it is emotional. It's funny and it is it is emotional. In particular, the end is. I didn't expect to feel such oh. thing about the american political process I, f- I fucking cried at the end and i will say i don't think your personal political leanings would affect your enjoyment of this movie one way or the other i mean if you've listened to us on the podcast you can probably guess our our personal politics and whatnot i try not to get into that too much for myself mm-hmm. but with this taking place in texas a lot of these kids are very conservative leaning yes. a lot of them want to run on platforms of gun rights and uh, and pro uh pro-life Pro-life, thank you. I was about to say pro-choice, and it sounded wrong in my head. Um, a lot of them are running on very conservative platforms like that, pro-Trumpism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Stephen is maybe the one, is the one blue spot in this red wave. And 
I think even if you're somebody who leans a little bit more conservative, you could hopefully find a little bit of enjoyment in the underdog nature of it. It's it's very much an underdog story about Stephen, in my opinion. Um, but I uh, I think no matter your political political leaning, you will find something to like in Voice State. I agree wholeheartedly. Cool, and that's it. That's all I watched. Awesome, awesome. Oh, that makes me happy. <laughs> I like I said, I always get. I always get a sense of joy or maybe even pride when I recommend something and you thoroughly enjoy it. Well, that was a good one. And to anyone listening, uh, I I definitely recommend Boy State. It's a blast. It's on what? Apple, Apple TV? Apple TV Plus or a- Apple, and it's, no, Apple Plus, whatever. It's Apple's Apple streaming service. Yeah, And it's available for rent in, I think, a couple different places as well. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, probably. It has to be. Yeah. yeah, sure. Awesome. All right. So that's what we've been watching. So let's dive into the reason that people tuned into this episode. And that is The Godfather. Released March 24th, 1972, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, based off the Mario Puzo novel, starring Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, and James Caan. Has a meta score of 100, which I feel is low. Uh, it went th- <laughs> it went three for eleven uh, at the Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So it did have eleven nominations. The eight it didn't win were Best Supporting Actor for James Caan, Best Supporting Actor for Al Pacino, Best Supporting Actor for Robert Duvall, Best Director for Francis Ford Coppola, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. It had a budget of six million dollars. Adjusted, that's thirty-seven million. Sam, it grossed $134 million in the U.S. That is $834 million adjusted. So to give you some historical context, only one film outgrossed it in 2019 adjusted for inflation, and that's Avengers Endgame. Wow. And Avengers Endgame would have outgrossed it by $20 million. That's it. That's how pop- Jesus, that's how big a hit it was. That's how big a hit it was. Mm-hmm. Also, for anybody interested in some more historical context, The Godfather was actually the highest grossing movie of all time until a certain movie about a fish came along a few years later. <laughs> nice. Uh, it grossed 246 worldwide adjusted. That's $1.53 billion, So that would have only finished behind Endgame and Lion King. The plot, the aging patriarch of an organized crime dynasty transfers control of his clandestine empire to his reluctant son. Sam, here we are, another one of our classic film series. And I say that like we had planned that we were doing classic film series as we just discussed it prior to our recording of the episode. We uh, polished off number three on the AFI Top 100. Here we are at number two on the AFI Top 100. What are your spoiler-free thoughts on The Godfather? There are some classic movies out there. I think that have suffered from age. Some that haven't aged well. Um, I haven't taken a good look at the AFI uh, list. There, there's certainly some on there. Maybe one or two on there. I think that. I think if you rewatched in retrospect, uh, maybe you would you would rank lower than they currently are. There are some that suffer from outdated directing techniques, outdated directorial techniques, outdated narratives. Things that just aren't just flat out aren't interesting anymore, and there's a lot that can suffer from a lot of different things. There's a lot of different ways, I guess, I'm, is what I'm saying. A lot of different ways that films on these lists can be degraded due to time. Now, The Godfather is not one of these films. <laughs> the Godfather is still exceptional, top to bottom. 
Uh, it still is helmed by a number of the greatest performances ever put to film. In particular, uh, I mean, <laughs> you can list anyone in the primary cast, but Marlon Brando is a, is a standout for me. Uh, one of the most iconic performances ever put to film. He's doing fantastic things with his voice and with his hands and with his command of the room every time he talks. He's doing exceptional work. Um, the cinematography in The Godfather is, of course, nothing shy of exceptional. Uh, it, uh, I, I just talked about with Spielberg, his use of light and shadow. I'm sure he uses this movie as a blueprint a lot of the time. The the framing, the the lighting, everything about The Godfather's cinematography is spectacular. Um, the, for all the great scenes, I really think it's the moments of this movie that make it fantastic. Like there, there's great scene after great scene after great scene, but all those can be divided into little moments like the taking of the cannoli and uh, like Luca Brasi uh, rehearsing to himself before going in to talk to the Don. Um, the, the favors from early in the movie being recalled later. Like there's so much to like the script is exceptional. The, the dialogue is great. We are given some of the best performances of a generation by like four members, at least of the cast. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's just, it's a fantastic movie. I think, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, um, he, I have not seen a Coppola movie outside of the Godfather. I think is what I am realizing right now. I don't think that I've seen a movie outside of The Godfather by Francis Ford Coppola, unless okay, so, you can think of uh, Apocalypse Now. No. The Conversation. No. Godfather Part 2. No. Godfather Part 3. No. Uh, the Rainmaker. No. Jack. No. Try to think of some of the shitty ones he's done. Uh, Has he done shitty movies? Yeah, it doesn't Jack. seem like somebody who can make a movie like this even knows what a shitty movie is. Oh, dude, he's made some super shitty movies. That's too bad. Uh, okay, hold on. Oops. Quick. Uh, makes that's... makes you wonder how he was okay. able to do that. Let's see here. Do, 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 do. Godfather. What did I miss? The Outsiders. Oh, that's a couple of movies. Okay, I've seen that. Okay. Uh, Peggy Sue got married. Mm-mm. Okay. Tucker the Man in His Dream. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Nope. Okay. Uh, the Rainmaker, and then he did these other movies. Uh, in the 2000s that I've never heard of, uh, but they are all they all went to shit from my understanding. Uh, Youth Without Youth, um, Metascore 43, uh, Tetro, uh, got a Metascore of 65, never heard of it. Um, Twixt, let's see here, Twixt, uh, Metascore of 40, never heard of it. Uh, oh, Val Kilmer and Bruce Dern and Elle Fanning, interesting. Um... And then Dins Distant Vision was in uh, his last film, 2016. Oh, uh, weird. Okay. Uh, no Metascore. Mm, and no... Oh, Jesus. Did it... it didn't make any money. <laughs> like, it doesn't even have anything. It was released on July 22nd of 2016, but it has no money. Wow. Oh, Proof of concept versions of this production have been broadcast to limited audiences from the stages of Oklahoma City College. Oh, it must have been like a, a filmed play. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah, it's a live cinema production. That's why. There we go. Okay, so there you go. I uh, mean, it's, it's such a strange filmography because obviously he didn't luck out because both The Godfather and Godfather Part Two are considered to be masterpieces same, as well as apocalypse now and same with the conversation i think the conversation is in the afi top 100 as well 
Is it? Okay. I, I was unaware of that. So the man clearly knows how to make a movie, or at least he did in the 70s. I wonder what happened starting in 1979. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of people talk about his abilities as a director. They feel that when he's kind of put... Um, like when he's kind of put under when he kind of when he's kind of put under pressure mm. he performs much better as is the case with the godfather like he was he was like the 15th choice for this to direct this film wow and godfather 2 and, and like he only did he only did this movie so he could get his film company his he had started a studio he started a studio with george lucas called american zoetrope mm -hmm. and they were at the time in 1970 19, late 60s early 70s they were four hundred thousand dollars in debt which God. that's a lot of money back then right mm. so he did this movie to to save his studio him and george lucas's studio it's the only reason he did it he did it for the money not because this was a passion project for him could have so, fooled me. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's the same with the second one and the third one. He did them for the money so he could fund his passion projects. Um, but yeah, were you was that was that everything you wanted to say? That was that was basically okay. I had to say on on the Godfather and non spoiler section. I think uh, I was going to say that Francis Ford Coppola clearly knows what he's doing in the director's chair because he composes an absolute masterpiece. Uh, but I guess uh, later films call that claim into question. Regardless, uh, whatever was happening for him at the time clearly worked because uh, The Godfather Part 1 is uh, is one that I've seen, I think, a couple of times before this. Uh, this is probably about my third watch, and it's still just excellent. I'm just double-checking something quickly. I'm just mm -hmm. about done. There. Okay. I, I thought his movie, The Conversation, was on the AFI uh, Top 100, but I, I was wrong. I, <laughs> I, I thought it was, but it, it, it definitely it's definitely not. And if it is, then I definitely didn't see it. Um, but the, conver the Conversation has a Metascore of 85. It's considered uh, an absolutely spectacular film that right. I, I desperately wanted to see as well. Um, the Godfather like you said is is one of those like indelible classics the the kind of movie you hear about when you start watching movies that the, oh the godfather is one of the greatest movies of all time oh the godfather is one of the greatest movies of all time and i remember when i finally got around to watching this i probably was probably a little bit younger than you are mm -hmm. and i was like okay well you know let's see what the hype is all about and then you watch it like Oh my God, this is as good as they say. And I agree. You know, it's. Well, you know what? I haven't seen Brando's two other. I haven't seen his two other big films uh, on the waterfront and Streetcar Named Desire. Um, <clears throat> my rewatching of The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two and The Godfather Part Three. Uh, it just really reminds me of what an incredible actor Al Pacino is. He is unbelievable in this movie. And I agree. James Conn James Conn is fine. But Brando, Pacino, and Robert Duvall 
are mesmerizing with Pacino and Brando especially being absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. The cinematography, the use of shadows, the arcs of these characters, the way the story is told, Coppola is just masterful in everything that he does. The fact that he didn't win <laughs> Best Director is jaw-dropping. I'm trying to think what other big film came out in 72 that he would have lost to. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, he would have lost. Oh, God, the, the name's going to escape me. Uh, is it Bob Fosse for Cabaret? That would have been, that would be my guess. Not on, not on my radar. Uh, damn it. Uh, so this would have been the 19, 1973 Oscars. Let's see here. Uh. Bob Fosse, Cabaret. Not bad. Well done. Nice. Well done, Manuel. <laughs> You're so good at that. Yeah, not bad. Hey, uh, well, I haven't even seen Cabaret, so I can't really take too much. I, I think I only knew that because it's one of those... It's it's like most people... Well, I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people know that Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan, but they haven't seen Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, a lot of people know that Cabaret is the movie. Did it win? I have to imagine Godfather won Best Picture, didn't it? Yeah, Godfather won. Godfather won Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. That's a, a very short list. <laughs> yes, I know. But <laughs> exceptionally if you, short list. Well, the the problem is, and like there is some backstory as well. Like Pacino boycotted the Oscars that year because he was he was put as supporting actor, where Brando's put as lead. Brando's not the lead in this movie. This is Michael's movie. Yeah, that's true. So he he boycotted the movie. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you heard what Brando did for his acceptance speech at this, at this Oscars. It's a, I don't know it, if I it, did. It's a famous Oscar moment. Mm, I can't think of it. No. Well, Brando didn't show up to the Oscars, and he gave he he sent uh, this Native American woman named Sashim Littlefeather to accept on his behalf. And he gave her a nine-page essay to read as his acceptance speech, but she knew that she only had a minute, so she couldn't read it. He sent her up there to bring attention to Hollywood's misrepresentation and misuse and disgusting racism towards Native Americans. So she was there to highlight the way Hollywood was treating Native Americans. And she goes up there and she starts talking about it and she is booed. Wow. Yeah. If you get How, a, if if you get a chance, you should watch the clip. I will. That's that's very bold from a man who uh, notoriously not such a big fan of the Jewish people. <laughs> <laughs> very very. I, I respect the move, but uh, minor hypocrite. They all were back then. Yeah. Uh, they all are now too. So true. But yeah, The Godfather is. It's it's as good as they say. This movie is just a drop-dropping piece of masterpiece. I I can't even heap enough praise onto this movie. Now, that being said, the AFI did two top 100 movies. They did one in 1997, and they did one in 2007. In 1997, Godfather was number three. In 2007, it was number two. Casablanca and them flipped. Yeah. And Citizen Kane in the number one, right? Oh, yeah. Citizen Kane is undeniably number one. Uh, mm-hmm. 
in all honesty, I don't really think if you if you look at the historical context of film and how thing how a movie has shaped the ones that came after and all of that, Citizen Kane is unassailable. Mm-hmm. Is it the most enjoyable movie? No, it's de- it's definitely not. But is it the most important and AKA the best movie? I, I believe it is. I-, I-, I don't think anything even really approaches Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to ask me, you put up Citizen Kane, you put up Godfather, like which one do you want to watch? I'd be like Godfather. Godfather <laughs> any day of the week. Yeah. If and you twice put, on Sundays. If you put up Godfather and Casablanca, whew, I'm probably going to pick Casablanca. Yeah. By the, I'm, I'm by the, probably by the slimmest of margins. The yeah. harder choice for me will be between Godfather 2 and Casablanca. But I think if if somebody said, do you want to watch Casablanca or do you want to watch The Godfather? I would say, what are you talking about? I'm not doing anything today. I'll call into work sick. Let's watch both. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um but yeah, The Godfather is a thoroughly enjoyable, ultimately rewatchable. It's a movie that the only reason I probably don't watch it more often than I do is its length. It, yeah, it's it just is, it's a it's an investment. It is an time. investment, but it does not even feel anywhere. It doesn't feel three hours long. Not like not even close. In fact, when I, it, when I, it I, ends, I'm just like every time it ends, I'm like. I just want to put in the Godfather too. <laughs> I just want to there, watch it back to back. There are some classics that I would not recommend to just about anybody. Um, but I had a, a, a coworker ask me today uh, what movie I was going to be talking about on the podcast tonight. And I said, I was going to be talking about the Godfather. And they said, Oh, I've never seen that. Uh, is it, is it really worth it? And I, without hesitation said, you're going to have to make a time investment. Like it's three hours long, but I promise you, if you put in the time, it'll be worth it. Like it, it really does hold up well. It does. All right. Let's get into the movie. Sam, do you want to take us into spoilers? Sure. Godfather is hella old. You should have seen it by now. (laughs) And if you haven't, I don't know why you're still listening, but we are about to spoil the shit out of this movie. Uh, Spoilers for The Godfather. Three, two, one. Go fuck yourself. All right. Sam, do you have an idea on how you'd like to talk about this movie in spoilers? I don't. I mean, the... I mean, the the instinct that I have is to break it down uh, by performance initially because we're going to need to spend time on on everybody. Okay. Um, do, do you want to maybe start on Marlon Brando? Sure. I don't believe that he's the lead actor in this movie. Nope. But he is the person I think of the most when it comes to this film. Yeah. When you think of The Godfather, you don't think of Michael Corleone, even though Al Pacino is also exceptional, and we'll get to him. But when when I hear The Godfather... I I usually think of I'll make him an offer he couldn't refuse or I made him an offer he couldn't refuse etc 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 just I think of the Vito Corleone qu- quotes and and his performance his command of every room that he walks into yeah I- I'm with you uh Brando <sighs> it's it's so sad to hear all the things that Brando did outside well, not even outside, like, what he did to basically derail his career as someone who is widely considered one of the greatest actors of all time. Not even of his generation, of all time. Mm-hmm. And when you watch him on screen in this, you're just astounded. And even more so when you hear the things he did in this movie. 
Sam, I don't know if you're aware, but like he didn't even bother to me- memorize his lines. He's, I didn't know that. He's reading off cue cards. <laughs> and yet, how? How does he manage that? Yeah, they're just off screen. His reasoning for it is that he feels he's giving a more real performance because he's not sitting there in the moment trying to remember what he's going to say next. He's reacting as he's saying it as if the thoughts were coming to him on his own. I mean, that's it. If you described that method to me without telling me who it was or in what movie, I would say, well, that's going to, that's a recipe for a wooden performance right there. That is a recipe for reading off the cue cards, just sounding like you're reciting stuff. That is a recipe for a boring ass performance. Then if you told me that was Marlon Brando for the Godfather, I would have told you you're full of shit, but (laughs) (laughs) that's, uh, I mean, you can't argue with the results. It's an excellent, excellent performance. Yeah. There is a, I heard a, a, a rumor or a, you know, a legend that in one of the scenes, his lines are taped to Robert Duvall's chest. (laughs) <laughs> i hope that's true <laughs> i find that really funny um in the opening scene you know the cat that he's playing with yes that's a stray that they found on the lot at warner brothers sweet that just happened to really love marlon brando and he loved marlon brando so much that his purring was so loud that all the dialogue in that scene couldn't be used so it's all adr wow that, that's that's pretty funny. You, you know what I do like about this opening scene from Marlon Brando? He doesn't have a lot to do in the first, like, minute or whatever that is when, uh, what's the, uh, Bonacera? Is that his name? Bonacera, yeah. Bonacera is giving the bulk of this monologue. The smallest thing that I just think is the best detail to put in a movie possible that they could have thought of is when Bonacera starts to become a little emotional when he's telling his story, the, the camera has been slowly zooming out to a to an over the shoulder shot and you see brando just give one little wave of the hand he he gives like a wave to his man and then to bonacera just the the flick of a wrist he doesn't even move his arm and then in, instantaneously almost bonacera has a drink in front of him just to just to calm his nerves that's just such a badass move yeah. <laughs> it's, i've always thought that was just the coolest thing and the best way to indicate right off the bat what a respected man Vito Corleone is. Mm-hmm. He is he is somebody who commands your respect and somebody that you need to take seriously. Obviously, you can also get that from Bonacera's monologue and from what he's saying. But then this little hand movement just does it does more than any dialogue can say. I agree. The opening the opening scene, the opening monologue is just spectacular. Brando is He's just mesmerizing on screen. It does make me sad that he did win Best Actor. I always, in my mind, always thought that he won Best Supporting Actor for this. Mm-hmm. And it's it was just an absolutely amazing year for actors. Uh, he went up against Michael Caine, Lawrence Olivier, Peter O'Toole, and Paul Winfield. Wow, what a year. Just some... Usually when you go f- back this far, there's a ton of names that I don't know. I know four to five of those people. They're just absolute dinosaurs at this point, but just excellent, excellent people. Yeah. Uh, there's always the, there's also, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the rumor, the legend that he's got cotton swabs down in his cheeks. Yep, to, I have heard that. Uh, it's not true. Mm. 
That's uh, unfortunate. He actually has he has a mouthpiece, some prosthetics in there to give him that look. Right. But he did, from the research I did, he did have cotton balls in there during his screen test to give that look. He wanted to, uh. he wanted to give the look of like a bulldog. That's why he did it. Yeah, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, but he didn't have cotton swabs in his mouth throughout the filming. There's an actual mouthpiece in there to give him that look. It's an awesome look, and it's a genius idea. So he would have come up with the idea then? Yes. Wow. It's, I mean, obvi- the guy's obviously a genius. It's just a real shame when geniuses are also pieces of garbage in real life. <laughs> yes, and then also waste their talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because did he did he retire from acting early? I really don't know a lot about his life story after, well, Godfather he, and Apocalypse Now. Really, I don't, I don't know, I don't know everything about everything that he did off off camera and stuff like that that caused him to be pretty much almost blacklisted. But he was a massive problem on sets. Like he sometimes just wouldn't show up. Mm-hmm. And so you know that fucks that you know fucks up your whole filming schedule. There he would he's extremely difficult and stuff like that. So a lot of filmmakers and a lot of studios didn't even want to work with him, and he started becoming more demanding and things like that. So he he just made him. It was just he was just too difficult to work with. So they just like why why would we waste our time? And then he got into some pretty heavy drug use and then became like ob beastly fat mm-hmm. and yeah it just it was just went all downhill from there he did i i do know oh what was it one of his sons uh killed a guy i think in like self-defense or like ended up killing a guy in some way didn't didn't end up doing much time in jail and then after getting out of jail committed suicide so oh my god yeah he like you know he had his own drinking problems, his own weight problems, his own drug problems. You know, his son commits a murder. His son can then commit suicide. So he didn't exactly have a a Hollywood life, and uh, yeah, it just led to a lot of problems. And that's that's sad to hear. Like, it just sounds like a like a bitter person. Not necessarily for <sighs> bad reasons, but just a bitter person. That's that's sad to hear because he is uh he was a light on the on the film industry when he was on camera yeah uh let's what's jeez you know the assassination happens to him just trying it's not until he comes out of his coma uh since we're i guess we're talking more about performances than plot is that what you wanted to do because the next my next kind of favorite scene with him well, we are in spoilers, so I guess it doesn't really matter. But mm-hmm. when he comes downstairs after Sonny's assassination, mm-hmm. he has that just that great line with Duval about uh, he says, "You know, I hear people coming and going. My wife is upstairs crying. Why don't why doesn't my conciliary tell his Don what everybody else seems to know?" Mm-hmm. And then Duval goes, I was just on my way up. And he goes, but you needed to have a drink before you told me. And yeah, Duval, I, just, Duval just gives that silent nod. It's a fucking great scene. And I, it's excellent writing on top of the performances. But the the writing of the, uh, Don Corleone as somebody who is always in the know, is always one step ahead of everybody else, and has been in the game for so long and is so perceptive of every little detail of every little person... 
the fact that he does notice all of those things and immediately draws the conclusion that his son is dead is not at all far-fetched. It is, it is perfectly reasonable that he would. And that was something that struck me as well. The, the way that he puts together all the pieces of that puzzle without having to be told is, uh, is awesome. And uh, an- another moment that I really like is the final conversation that he has with Michael before he dies. Uh, the the line where he says, uh, "You're going to be invited to a meeting by somebody that you perfect that you absolutely trust, guaranteeing your safety, and at that meeting you'll be assassinated." <laughs> and then at his funeral, uh, one of their confidants invites Michael to a meeting, Tes- and Tessio, m- m- yeah, Tessio invites him to a meeting, and just there's there's a risk in writing a character like that where he starts to feel omnipotent and untouchable and it's it's difficult to write a character like that in a way that he's still vulnerable and you still uh feel anxious when he's in danger because if he just knows everything then he can get out of every situation but even even his knowledge has its bounds and we see him uh, the, the scene of him getting assassinated, uh, the, the fall on the hood of the car is is ridiculous. Would be a bad word. It is it is out there. Let's say the the, the the fall down the hood of the car is is a little out there from Brando, but it's not inauthentic by by any stretch. It's just very physical. It's very very physical. And uh, yeah, just uh, I mean, if we want to list off all of our favorite Marlon Brando scenes in this movie, we might as well just recite the goddamn movie. <laughs> every scene that he's in he steals he completely steals it yes i agree the only the, i i think in my opinion the only time he doesn't steal it is when he's with pacino because mm-hmm. i i feel that pacino is pacino's the only one on brando's level in this movie yeah and again upon rewatch it's just absolutely astounding the work that pacino's putting in the way he builds up this character the way that he Starts the movie. <clears throat> I guess we're just transfer. We're just transferring over to Pacino now. Sure. Where he starts off the movie, his relationship with Kay, he is open and discusses everything with Kay. <clears throat> and then, as the movie progresses along, and he starts to realize that his true calling is to be, he, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he wants nothing to do with his family. He arrives late at his own sister's wedding. Everyone is in tuxes. He comes in his army uniform. Everyone else, all the all the girls are wearing like the salmon color and stuff like that. Kay shows up wearing red, like they're just complete outsiders. He wants nothing to do with his family. His whole family is they're over like, and that wedding is it's shot like a documentary. It's so mm. well done, but like everyone's mingling. You know, the family has a table. Michael and Kay are sitting by themselves. It's it's so perfectly constructed to show that Michael is outside the family. He doesn't want to be a part of it. He knows what they do. He's chosen a different path. And as things progress and move along, he starts to close off to Kay until eventually at the end, the final shot is the door closing on Kay's face. Yeah. <clears throat> it's just such an incredibly great script, and Pacino plays everything perfectly. The trend, I, I, there's, There are some things he does that, leave me a little <clears throat> scratching my head and not too much, but Kay is a, a character that always kind of confused me a little bit. I guess since I'm kind of jumping all over the place, I'll, I'll just, I'll deal with Kay first and I'll circle back to Pacino. Sure. Pacino 
murders some people, goes and hides in Italy. I have some problems with the I have some problems with the Italy stuff as well. Minor quibble, minor quibbles. Mm. <laughs> which I'll I, I'll get, well fuck it I'll just get there now. He's in Italy. He's hiding from the uh, from the mafia. He's hiding from the other families. They're Italian mafia. They would have their own gangsters in Italy as well. So he has a wedding that invites the whole fucking village, and yeah. they're parading in public. Whatever, beautiful shots, but not not quite you know the hiding out you should be doing when you're wanted by four other mob families not to mention like i understand the decision to send him to italy in a uh, in the perspective of like they they know they have people there but if the idea is to hide him right <laughs> if the idea is to send him to a place where nobody knows where he is you can send protection anywhere you're yeah. you're the fucking mob you have the money yeah go to paris I- Go yeah, to, go, go to Amsterdam. <laughs> go to literally anywhere that is not Italy, <laughs> because you are the Italian mob, and people are not stupid. Yes. Yeah, that I'm glad you said that. I, <laughs> that bothered me as well. Okay, perfect. So, like I said, minor quibble doesn't matter, but whatever. He goes to Italy, meets a girl, gets married. I'll, we'll tackle that uh, again down the road. There's some major problems with that actress, by the way, mm. that I, I don't think you're aware of. Um. He, <clears throat> she dies. He comes back to problem the, solved. <laughs> that's not the problem with her. <laughs> oh, okay, got it. <laughs> Trust me. <clears throat> you know what? I'll go there right now. Sure. I don't know if you're aware. Uh, I'm just gonna. I'm dou- shaking my head. I'm gonna double check the actress's name. Where's Apollonia? Apollonia. Apollonia. There she is. Simon Seda Stefanali. Um, so she was born, uh, in 1954, Sam, uh, this film was filmed in 1970, 1971. Hmm. So that means some quick mental math there. That means we got to see a nude scene of a 16 and a 17 year old girl. Why, why, why'd you say it like that? Got to. Yeah. <laughs> That is, uh, that's uncomfortable to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I do not want to comment yes. on that. Okay. <laughs> I think that fact stands as it is. Yes, it does. Okay. And it is unfortunate that they had to go that route and yes. they couldn't find somebody who was of age. Yes. And I will not say anything else. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So, I would like. What's your rough estimation on how long he was in Italy? I would say he'd have to be there about a year, right? Yeah, at, at least a year. At least a year. Then, when he comes back to New York, he does some stuff, and then it flips ahead to when he meets up with Kay. He says he's been back in New York for a year, so it's been mm-hmm. minimum two years if, since the shooting. Since the shooting, if not more. Since he left, since he basically, I, I, I'm assuming he didn't even say goodbye to Kay because he had to get the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah. So he appears out of nowhere looking like a fucking gangster, right? When he hops out of that car. Yeah. He fucking looks like Al Capone. So she, <laughs> she's also working as a teacher. She's got all these kids. She just fucking ditches those kids to go on a walk with this guy. Yeah, it's the 70s. Kids were allowed to run around and be themselves. Yeah. But she takes him back that yeah i i've 
I've never really understood their relationship in this movie. I understand Kay's inclusion in the movie in the beginning I, I, as far as as far as her she serves uh, she serves a great job as an audience surrogate. Like she serves very well the role of being the outsider to this world so uh, so Al Pacino can explain the world to her and all the relationships to her, but really he's explaining to the audience. Yes. Really he's saying to the audience, this is who Luca Brasi is, this is who my dad is, this is what's going on at this wedding right now, this is why I don't want to be in this family. He's explaining it to her, but really he's explaining it to us. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a it's a clever way of masking it that filmmakers do all the time. Yep, so yep. I, I love her inclusion in the movie in that regard. Does she, does she need to be in the back half of the movie? Really? She uh, she does in that she that Michael has to have a family because he's mm-hmm. an Italian gangster so he has to have a family he has to he has to, he has to start his own family so I guess yeah. right he doesn't but have, doesn't need to be her but where like who else would it be she has to be a character you know or have been introduced to at some point yeah I guess, I guess that's true it just it just feels the the reaccepting of Michael back into her life right away, especially when she knows what fucking bad news he is. She she has really not expressed the desire to be part of that world. And he has been reassuring her for this entire film. He's like, hey, this is my family. It's not me. This isn't who I am. Yeah. I'm not a gangster. And he's been reassuring her. And she seems very comforted by that. So I I would like to believe that if he shows up in full gangster garb, and is clearly up to some sketchy shit that she would have a problem with that. The time that he spent away aside, like put, put that out of the way for a moment. Just the fact that he is clearly going down a bad path would not sit well with Kay. Combine that with the fact that he ditched you for two years with, without so much as a so long is, uh, is problematic. Yeah. So it's like I said, it's a, one of the minor quibbles I had in the movie, but fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. Let's circle back to our praising of Pacino. So Pacino's whole arc has worked out so well. You know, it's it starts, you know, it starts with the wedding. He doesn't want to be a part of the family. And then it turns a little bit of a corner when Michael goes to visit his dad in the hospital after the assassination. And this is where Michael starts to realize his true calling. He realizes something is wrong. You know, the protection isn't there. So he quickly realizes that there is about to be another assassination attempt on his father. And like that, he goes into problem-solving mode. He gets the nurse to help move his dad. He gets the baker to pretend to be gangsters protecting. Enzo. Enzo. He, get, <laughs> he, gets, he gets them, right? And then he gets punched by the cops and is about to be arrested before his stepbrother? Foster brother? Yeah, it's Tom, right? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, I don't know what you would call him. I think, yeah, at the beginning, all he says is he's like a brother to me. Yeah, that's they, all that he calls they, him. They took him into they took him into the family because he was a street urchin, mm-hmm. and, and raised them as part of the family. Even though he's not Italian, so he can never be in the family. Like they keep throwing that in his face. It's fucking harsh, especially when like Sonny does it a few times. Sonny is a fucking dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> And that's fine because everything I hear about James Conn, he's a dickhead in real life anyways. Yeah, I heard that too. Um, so the the hospital scene is where Michael starts to make the turn, so starts to realize, and then he gets punched by the cop. And then that's the scene. Well, I'm not sure if it's following it, but the next scene we have them planning 
the assassination of Salazzo and yes. McCluskey. And it's Michael that comes up with the plan. And you can mm-hmm. see how good he would be in this life. He really starts to make that turn. And a, a, a moment that I like in this scene is after Michael comes with the with the idea, Sonny still takes the opportunity to belittle him mm-hmm. a little bit. He still takes the opportunity to play the big brother card and be like, well, look at what Michael came up with. Look at you getting involved in the family business. And, and just, to, just to bring him down a peg a little bit, assert himself as the alpha and as the oldest. I, I do like that as a moment, but it's clear right here. Michael is dead serious and dead set on being a part of this now. I, I remember the first time I watched it, I was almost jarred. It almost felt... I think I had maybe missed a few clues along the way. I'd maybe missed the significance of the hospital scene. I think my first time watching this, because I was like, "Whoa, Michael switching so quickly! That's so crazy." I'm and, with you there. I'm with you. And there. I, I also, I think I maybe neglected to understand how much more character arc there was to come. Right? Like, there's there's still a lot of growing for Michael to do, but I think in a, it, from a certain point of view, this this change comes pretty quick in the film. It does, and I'm with you. I remember when I watched it the first time, you know, 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. I remember thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, he kind of jumps into this a little too quickly. But as you start to, I don't know, I guess mature or you start looking at it a little bit more critically, you start – you see those turns coming a little Mm -hmm. bit sooner, and it makes makes a lot more sense. It's at the restaurant assassination – it's uh, obviously it's here where Michael fully accepts his lot in life to become in the he murders two people and I guess you can't really quite say cold blood but uh, they have to do it and then he goes to Italy uh, to hide out like we said that you and I both agree that's a, a poor decision on behalf of the, uh, <laughs> the family <laughs> the Corleones but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other small quibble I have, uh, in Italy is, uh, uh, Apollonia's dad pimps that bitch out. I, I chalk that up to cultural difference. I don't know. This is, this is Italy in the forties, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I chalk that up to a cultural difference, but yeah, I did not get a father of the year vibe from that dude. Yep. Uh, um, I, I want to talk about the, uh, the diner shooting if, if we're going there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I almost in my head was drawing a little bit of a comparison to uh, one of our favorite scenes of recent years, the border crossing scene from Sicario. I got a very similar uh, vibe in the sense of the tension that's being built for several scenes prior. So for anyone who hasn't seen Sicario, there's, there's a scene where the FBI is leaving Mexico in very dangerous cartel territory. And there's, there's, there's a shooting that happens, but what makes the scene great is not the scene itself, even though it is excellent. It is also the buildup that leads up to it. And I, I feel the very same about this, uh, this diner shooting um, right from the planning. It, it becomes very apparent how important it's pointed out by, I think Sonny, how important it is that there's a gun there. It's pointed out by a few different people that he needs to shoot them, shoot each person in the head twice. And then he needs to drop the gun immediately. It's also pointed out that he needs to come out of the bathroom firing. There's all these details that are pointed out and drilled into Michael's head and drilled into your head, the audience member. It's drilled into you that he's got to do all these things for the, for the shooting to go right and for it to be successful. 
So when we get to the actual shooting, at first we think maybe they're going to New Jersey and they're going to go to the wrong diner, and we get a little bit of suspense there. When he reaches behind the box, he doesn't find the gun initially, and he has a little moment of panic. There's all these little things that go wrong along the way, which only work to build suspense because we've had our expectations set up for several scenes leading up to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's really, really masterfully done. It's easy to just say this film is good because it's well acted or because it's well shot or because it's well written. But a lot of it has to do with the overall overarching context of the entire buildup. Does that make sense? Does 100%. Well said. (laughs) The next is... I guess, well, Apollonia's death is pretty brutal. Yeah, yikes. And Pacino's really good in it. Uh, They blew up a, yeah, it's fine. It's really fucking harsh. But (laughs) Michael comes back. He meets with Kay. um, And then he takes over with Sonny's death. Uh, Pacino's now really turning it on here, really upping his skill as an actor his scenes with brando are electric uh him going to vegas he is so fucking intimidating so calm telling mo green how it's gonna be telling fredo to get these chicks out of the room fredo just such a poor guy he's just so overlooked and just the whipping boy of the family yeah, he doesn't uh he doesn't really belong in this world. It seems like he he seems like the one that the family members are always trying to figure out a job for. They're always trying to figure out, "Oh, what can what can Fredo do?" So it seems like they just ship him off to Nevada just to be somebody else's problem. He's a, a nitwit might be strong to say, but he's he's sort of the the least important of the family. And I don't just mean that from like a writing perspective. I mean like in their family dynamic, he yes. is just he is the he is the runt of the litter. Even though he's the second oldest. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, Pacino is so good in the Vegas scene with Mo Green. Just all business. Just it it's it's really here in the rest of the movie where I'm just like, how did he not win? And you haven't seen Godfather 2, have you? I have not. Okay. I I would put Pacino's performance in Godfather 2 in easily the top five performances of all time. Mm-hmm. It's I'm so looking forward to us discussing it next week. The He's so smart, so cunning. He's the perfect heir to Don Vito. He, it's so... I guess it's so sad that you know Vito didn't want his son to be in this life when he is as it's showing he's perfect for it um and then yeah and then we have you know the the baptism scene uh just spectacular i i think that's everything i got for pacino i don't think there's anything i really anything else i need to t- say about him yeah, I don't think that I have anything else about Pacino that won't be covered later anyway. So Okay. Uh, I'm going to quickly touch on James Caan. He, as as Sonny Santino, the oldest, he, they do, like, all they keep saying is that he's the hothead, that he's, 
not quite psychotic, but unhinged, uh, can't be controlled, uh, can't control his emotions, and his enemies end up using that to his advantage in the absolutely brutal assassination scene of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do love in the wedding scene the unspoken scene about how big his dick is. I don't know if I recall. Oh, you've oh Jesus! It's so perfect. It's right before he takes up that girl to fuck. Yeah, there's a scene of his wife doing this. Oh yeah. <laughs> and for those obviously, yep. for people that uh, can't see because this is an audio podcast, I'm moving my hands farther and farther apart. There's a scene where his wife is non-verbally, bragging. yeah, bragging to her friends how big Santino's cock is. My favorite uh, James Con moment in this scene or in this portion of the movie is the moment the uh, the I think it's reporters show up with cameras yeah. and they're and they're all taking photos <laughs> and he smashes one of their cameras and then without saying a word just takes out his wallet and throws a few bills on it and walks back. <laughs> it's just bad ass. Yeah, so badass. He is great in the scene after Michael gets beat up by the cops. And also in the scene where they make the plan to uh, kill Salazzo and McCluskey in the mm-hmm. in the diner, he's he's fine. He just I I think for me he just seems not quite as good because Pacino and Brando are doing such exceptional work and and Robert Duvall is doing exceptional work. So for me, James Con James Con kind of seems over the top for me, uh, especially in the beating up Carlo scene, which would have to rank in the all-time worst fight scenes ever put to screen. Yeah, let's I, <laughs> touch on that while we're there. Uh, shocking in a movie of this caliber and this pedigree. A uh, movie like The Godfather, which in my head should just be unimpeachable. It, yes. like Little mistakes in The Godfather stick out really badly because of how perfect this movie supposedly is. But this fight scene, noticeably bad. (laughs) Noticeably bad. Yes. It's shocking in a movie like this for me that this scene exists. And I think the the, the fault probably falls on both director and cinematographer. Uh, It's it's the way it's shot. It's shot in long takes from the side. Mm -hmm. uh, And you can see all the near misses. uh, There's there's a couple that aren't even near misses. They are misses by like a foot yeah it's it's bad it's actually bad it's it's all to do with the way it's shot i don't think it's bad uh what do you call it uh like i'm acting fighting there's there's a stage fighting stage fighting stage fighting it's 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 not bad stage fighting in my opinion it's poorly shot yes because they're they're shooting them from the side so you can see how far away the punches are missing Mm -hmm. it's it's a kind of a baffling decision in a movie that's perfect i agree i agree and uh, one thing, right before he goes to beat up Carlo, he does something that always makes me laugh when he bites his fist. Because <laughs> he's so angry, he bites his own fist. Yeah, when, uh, he, when he sees his sister's face. Yeah, when he sees his sister's face. And then, you know, the setup, that, that sets up, it shows his anger, how protective he is of his sister, which sets up the way he gets assassinated. Uh, which is so incredibly brutal. Yeah, 
oh my god that they do not pull any punches after uh after not quite getting it right with Vito and uh, <laughs> allowing him to live they want to make fucking sure that Sonny is dead yes um other than that I don't think there's anything else James Con did that I really wanted to touch on uh no I'm looking through my notes real quick here too we we talked about just about everything overall I'm I'm Happy with their performance, though. Very good. Okay. Uh, so Robert Duvall's next as Tom Hagen, the conciliary conciliary of the family. He is a lawyer for them. And if we're going to talk about Duvall, there's one scene in particular that we have to talk about, uh, and that's his trip out west to Los Angeles to try and get uh, the godson uh the, the role in the movie with Tom Wolf? No. Tom Waltz? Uh, Jack Waltz. Waltz. Jack Waltz. Yeah. In arguably the fam- most famous scene in this film. I mean that's it's picking one like I, I think you can pick any of the big famous ones. Yeah. Like the opening of this movie is so famous as well. True. The, the horse's head is it's in contention. Yes. Uh, I fucking love, wait, hold on, John Marley as Jack Waltz is a fucking standout for me. He's just like, mm, you want me to take it up to 11 on this take, Francis? I can do that for you. I got another gear for you. Let me just hit the nitro button on this one for you there, big man. He just goes over the top, and I am eating it up and i am i'm glad that they made this character so unlikable like that little story he gives to tom about why he won't let this guy have the part he's just like shut the fuck up man you're such a weasel (laughs) he just he's essentially just jealous that uh that this dude uh, stole his uh stole his side piece or whatever just the the girl he was banging that he had groomed and he describes in a super creepy way yeah Uh, well the best the be- oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. The best Go part is it. he talks about how the studio invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in this girl to make her a star. And then he goes, and just to prove I'm not a heartless guy, this girl was the finest piece of ass I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> she was beautiful. She was the uh, finest you- piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had it all. <laughs> that What a romantic, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad in a movie full of murderers and mobsters and wife beaters, I'm glad that they decided to make this guy just the biggest genuine piece of shit in this movie, yeah. or at least among them. And the, my favorite part in this scene, like Jack is such a dick. Like he's invited Tom Hagen to his house for dinner. They're in the middle of dinner, and Jack starts fucking going off to the point he gets up out of his seat crosses the long table to get over into almost into Tom's face is screaming at him and my favorite part is Tom's just sitting there looking at him mm-hmm. keeps cutting his chicken <laughs> takes a sip of wine mm-hmm. and the, Jack is screaming at him talking about his olive oil skin and greasy hair <laughs> it is fucking outstanding and then he's just like well he's like Vito Corleone likes to hear bad news as soon as possible. It gets up and leaves. <laughs> it is awesome. It is Tom yeah. Tom Hagen is a great fucking character and Duval kills it. Worthy of this nomination. Sadly, it's one of those roles 
that you and I talk about all the time that will never win because it's understated. He doesn't have the great big screaming scene. He doesn't have this incredibly impassioned monologue. His is that subtle acting, those subtle scenes, exactly what we were talking about earlier when Vito comes down to ask why what's happened to Santino. And he just, you know, he has that slight nod that he needed to have that drink. It's, it's just, it's that subtle acting that you and I love that rarely ever wins the award. That's a, that's a great description of it. And I think the character of Tom is a really good one. And one of the things I like about the way that it's written is they, uh, he, he's very much an extension of Vito. He's very, he's very much, he, he takes his role as conciliary very seriously, obviously, and somebody who was raised in this family as an outsider. He, he does a very good job, in my opinion, and the writers do a good job of showing us that he, he, he is very much like the Don. He very much is the same calm presence. Uh, he is very much the brains of this organization. Um, when the Don isn't around, he's the second in command. Um, Sonny, for all of his, for all of his uh, benefits, I mean, he's, he's somebody who's always going to defend the family and always going to uh, do what's right for the family. He's not the brains. He's not the one out there getting all the plans done and executing as well as he can. When the Don wants something done in Vegas, when he wants to make sure that this man will give his godson the job that he needs, he sends Tom, not because he knows that he's going to muscle him and hold a gun to his head and, and all this stuff. He knows that he is going to consider all the options and make the smart decision, That that, in my opinion anyway. Tom... Tom is an extension of Vito and is the calm presence in the room when Don isn't there. And it's a, it's a great performance and a great character. Yeah. And I love exactly what you said. Like Tom, Tom's like a chess player, uh, mm-hmm. like a good chess player because he's thinking four or five moves ahead. And yeah. it, it, it shows that in the first Salazzo scene, like when Salazzo, you know, offers, you know, we're going to, he's like, I want to go into business with the Corleones and drugs Vito's not that interested in it because he doesn't want to he knows what drugs can do but Tom tells him he's like you know it may be a dirty business he's like but if we don't get into it one of the other families will it will make them a lot of money they'll be able to buy the politicians and the cops that we currently have that will put us at a disadvantage yes it may be an industry that we don't like but five ten years down the road everybody else is going to be doing it we need to get in on the ground floor so we can control it He's thinking five, ten moves ahead. He's he he knows what he's doing. He's so incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. And, and I I was just going to say on that note, I think uh, one of the great things about this whole drug issue that uh, Don Vito doesn't want to go into uh, it shows a lot with for all of this character's many uh, many traits of being the smartest man in the room, being so many steps ahead of anyone in most times. He's also an old dog, right? He also has been in this game for a long time and the the game is sort of changing around him and he doesn't, the, adapting to new ways of doing things is a little bit foreign to him. And I think that's why this transition in the history of this family is so, is, is such an important moment to look at in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, it's why this transition is so interesting. It's because we're going from uh, Vito Corleone who's 
a super smart person, but is very old fashioned to Michael Corleone, who is a little bit more of a hard ass and somebody who is a little bit less diplomatic and has a different style and is a little bit more adaptive to the changing times. It's, I think the overarching story, at least of this movie is the transition from the old school to the new school. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's much more I want to discuss about Duval, and yeah, other than the baptism scene and the ending, I think I covered most of everything I want to talk about. Sam, is there anything that we skipped over that you want to discuss before we get to the very end of the movie? Uh, yeah, I think all that I have left is the last three scenes, essentially. Okay. Uh, go ahead. Fire off what you want to go up. Yeah, uh, the baptism, in my opinion, is just a phenomenal piece of filmmaking. It's not, uh, it's a great example of what you can do as a filmmaker that is outside the realm of acting. It's a great example of what editing can do. Film yes. is one of the only, it's one of the only uh, forms of media that has this tool as at its disposal, the edit. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's been books and essays and classes about this one scene. Like, this is just how you edit. Having these two ideas happening at the same time, the baptism of the son and the baptism of Michael in the mob as the godfather, uh, and the, the two mirrored scenes of him renouncing the devil while simultaneously having all of his rivals killed. It is, uh, it is a beautiful scene with the, the organs swelling in the background. And uh, it it has me in awe every time. And it makes me excited. It makes me excited about film. And it makes me excited to be able to watch this movie and dissect it. Because this is... This isn't even, like, a great scene from Al Pacino or anything. He's certainly doing fine. But he's... It's very reserved performance. It's, it, it, there's not a lot happening. All, all he's doing is reciting what he needs to say back at the priest. The star of this scene is the edit. Yes. <laughs> the, the montage of two ideas happening at the same time. And this is not this is not a scene you can do. Like you, you can't do the baptism scene well in a book. You, you, you just can't do it well in a book. Uh, it, it becomes a little bit too jarring. But the the mirroring of these these two things happening simultaneously is uh, is something that essays have been written about and rightfully so. I just wanted to point that out. I'm with you 100%. It's it's a it's an absolute a mastercraft of editing and just it's a great way for the for the film to lead us into the like I guess the final two scenes and yeah, it's just it's awesome. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie and leads us into, you know, the, the final part, the I guess the final two parts. Uh I I'm assuming for you the final two parts is Michael talking to Carlo and then Michael talking to Kay. Bingo. Okay. So Michael talking to Carlo, this is just where Michael shows how cunning and smart he is as he just plays Carlo like a fiddle. Just extracts the information he needs subtly, smoothly, without threatening, without threatening him. It's you're I'm just watching it and I'm like, "Holy fuck." I'm like, e is there anybody in the world that could outsmart Michael Corleone? It's absolutely mesmerizing to watch Pacino's performance here. And again, I'm jaw dropped. He didn't win mm -hmm. for this role. 
yeah, this has got to be one of the best scenes in the movie for Pacino. I mean, they're all one of the best scenes in the movie for for everybody. But uh, I I love this is the scene where you see. I mean, the, if the baptism is where the transformation happens, like he becomes the Godfather in that scene uh, in more ways than one. This is the first scene where we get to see the the Michael Corleone who's who is the Godfather, who's the Don. This this is the first scene we get him on display, and he outmatches his opponent in this scene just a billion times over. Carlo is shaking, and he even does that same thing, by the way. He even he summons a drink for him with his hand in this scene, just a great mirror of, of the old and the new. I love it. There's so much to like about this scene, and uh, well acted by the actor who plays Carlo. I didn't catch his name, but he is scared shitless. He knows that there is some bad shit happening but michael does well to calm him and let him know he's not going to die wink wink he just needs to know who who tipped him off or he just he just needs to know who he was in bed with oh sorry did did you lose me for a second there no no you're all good you're you're good oh just i just had a notification on my screen that said uh, connection lost yeah nope you i didn't lose you you didn't hiccup or anything you're all good here Okay, you froze on my end. Anyway, moving along. Uh, he All he wants to know is who Carlo was in cahoots with. And after he's calmed him down and he's had his drink, he does let him know. Uh, I can't remember who it was that he was in, uh, who, who he was in bed with. Barzini. Um, yeah, Barzini. Is like, it, it was Barzini. And Michael just says, okay. Well, there's the car waiting to take you out to the airport, and he sends him out to the car, and the guy is fucked. <laughs> the guy, the guy, I can't believe he doesn't see it coming, but he's, uh, yeah, yeah. Michael yeah. just has this calming presence about him. Yeah, that, well, he, t- uh, he tells me, he's like, do you think I'm going to make my sister a widow? Are you, yeah. Am I going to make my godson an orphan? Yeah. And you're like. Then kills him anyway. Heartless. Kills- Heartless bastard. Heartless bastard. I love it. I, I love this scene. And then we get into the very end where we have Kay. Well, we have a obviously a not the greatest acting from Talia Shire. She's pretty weak in the film. That's why I didn't really, <laughs> want, I didn't really want to talk about her all that much anyways. Yeah, she's... You want to talk about going over the top. Her, her The scene where she has the tantrum, which we didn't even touch on, where she starts, like, knocking each dish off of the cabinet individually <laughs> is kind of really funny to me, actually. Yeah, it is. Uh, but, yeah, she's she's not doing fantastic work. No. But she obviously, obviously thinks that Michael has had her husband killed. She's obviously upset. Uh, and then Kay, you know, defending Michael. Michael would Michael would never do that. And then she keeps asking him and he keeps telling her, you know, don't, you can't ask about the business can't. And then finally erupts and then calms down and then says to her, I will give you this one time. You can ask about the family business. And so Kay being naive as fuck asks him and Michael flat out lies to her face and Kay buys it. I don't know if she actually truly believes it. I think she just wants to believe it. She I wa- think that's a that's a good assessment. She wants to believe it's true. She wants to have the fairy tale life and she walks out the door feeling good about herself, but probably deep down knowing full well that she is trapped in hell. Mhm. And then that fucking amazing last shot her point of view looking back at Michael in the office through the door frame 
and I think I think the character's name is Al Neri. Somebody comes in, kisses the Godfather's hand. Al Neri goes and closes the door on Kay. Credits. Mm-hmm. Fucking spectacular film. Uh, the the last scene of this movie gives me chills a little bit. It's a perfect character arc. It is, it, it's almost a tragedy in a way. We we lose Michael Corleone. We, we, the guy that we saw at the beginning of the movie is no longer there. The guy who is uh, who's young and idealistic and doesn't want to be part of the business and just wants to be a good man, that person is gone. We now have the new Don mm-hmm. and the, the new head honcho and uh, a man who's secretive and cunning and, uh, and when it comes down to it, fucking cold-blooded. And uh, the, the other guy is no longer there. It's it's a fantastically written character arc. And uh, the closing of the door, like you said, the, the mirroring sort of of how open he is at the beginning uh, with Kay. And then the closing the door on her after lying to her face at the end is uh, is just shows you what this movie is about and just shows you what this character arc is. Oh, it's just so good. Mm-hmm. I think that that's looking over my notes. That's everything I got. I think that's the Godfather, Manny. It's the Godfather. We obviously left out a lot. We didn't talk yeah. about like Clemenza, Tessio. We didn't talk about Carlo or Salazzo. Luca Brasi. Luca Brasi. There's taught. There's so much that we could discuss. Okay. You know what? Yes. I got one one last note, just okay. overarching about the movie. Yeah. The orange. Oh, I lost you there. Oh, you totally froze. Let's pause here. Hello, everyone. I am so sorry we had some technical difficulties where we actually lost Sam. A scheduled internet shutdown? Internet blackout? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. That was on the Shaw website. Yes. They, they scheduled the shutdown my internet, and I, I didn't see it. Yeah. So, so we, had, uh, we prematurely had to end the, uh, the podcast. So we're picking it up almost 24 hours later to finish it off because we want to make sure you guys get your content. Indeed. So <clears throat> we're just going to go right into the trivia. It's what we were about to start when we lost Sam. So I got some trivia for you, Sam. As always, I tried to really whittle it down since there's so much on this film. So I tried to get to uh, some stuff that I think you'd find enjoyable. Are you ready? I'm so ready. And you did try to sprinkle some into the uh, to the actual episode, like when we were talking about the movie. I did notice that. Yes. Sprinkling it in because you knew there'd be a lot. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, during an early shot of the scene where Vito Corleone returns home and his people are carrying him up the stairs, Marlon Brando put weights under his body on the bed as a prank to make it harder to lift him. <laughs> Asshole. I know. Uh, Lenny Montana, who played Luca Brasi, was so nervous about working with Marlon Brando that in the first take of their scene together, he flubbed some lines. Director Francis Ford Coppola liked the genuine nervousness and used it in the final cut. The scenes of Luca practicing his speech were added later. Hmm. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did see that one. I think as I was doing a little research on this movie, that's it's a nice touch. Adding, uh, we didn't talk a lot about Luca Brasi. Yeah. Uh, in our episode, but I I really like his character and the few scenes that he's given right at the beginning of the movie are a lot of fun. Totally. Uh, the early buzz on this movie was so positive that a sequel was bl- was planned before the film was even finished filming. 
that is not so crazy, I don't think, in the in the modern age of franchises and blockbusters, etc. Yeah. Back then, definitely was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gianna Russo uh, used his organized crime connections to secure the role of Carlo Rizzi, going so far as to get a camera crew to film him in his own audition and send it to the producers. However, Marlon Brando was initially against having Russo, who had never acted before, in the film. This made Russo furious, and he went to threaten Brando. However, this reckless act proved to be a blessing in disguise because Brando thought Russo was acting and was convinced he would be good for the role. (laughs) Oh, man. I I hope that's true. That sounds like the kind of story that has some legend to it, like that has maybe some... Well, actually, exaggeration. I, well, I was actually listening to a podcast and they interviewed uh, the guy that played Carlo and he says that's true. Oh, wow. Wow, yes. that's crazy. Yeah. The only thing is, if you listen to some of the rest of the interview, uh, he makes some pretty outlandish claims about his life that I found hard to believe. Hmm. Questionable. Yeah. Serial liar, maybe. Yeah. Here's here's one. And I'm not lying. This is exactly what he said on the podcast. Is that it, it is proven that he was friends with Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Apparently, she took his virginity, according to him. Mm, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. I mean, I would claim that too, but yeah. no. So, anyways. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I can't remember... <clears throat> I can't remember the, whose baby it is that's being baptized at the end during the baptism scene. Is it Connie? It's it, Car- Connie and Carlos. Yes, Kay. correct. That baby is Sofia Coppola. I, I have heard that as well, actually. I think I was listening to an interview with Sofia Coppola. And, or, or no, sorry. I think when we were looking through Sofia Coppola's filmography one time, I think she has mm. listed on, on Wikipedia uh, her that as her first acting credit. Yes. So during the filming of uh, The Godfather, while filming Sonny's Tryst with Lucy, so that's the chick that Sonny was banging at the wedding. Mm-hmm. Eleanor Coppola went into labor. Francis Ford Coppola went to the hospital after the scene was completed, and Sophia Coppola was born. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's that's kind of perfect timing. I know. <laughs> and she's there just in time for the baptism scene. Okay, this is a la- This last one's a little long, but I saved it for last because I think that you'll enjoy it because it's, abs- it's, it's stupid and ridiculous. There was a great deal of mooning on set. Started by James Caan and Robert Duvall. In an effort to break some tension during a rehearsal for their first scene, the pair mooned Francis Ford Coppola, Marlon Brando, and Salvatore Corsito. Caan told Time Magazine the best moon was on 2nd Avenue. Bob Duvall and I were in one car, and Brando was in another. So we drove up beside him, and I pulled down my pants and stuck my ass out the window. Brando fell down in the car with laughter. Richard Bright claimed that it got to the point where every time you turned open a door, you expected to see someone's behind. Even Al Pacino got in on the act as he told Ladies Home Journal, quote, In a scene where I sit behind a desk, wardrobe made a big fuss about getting me a shirt with a smaller collar. So while everyone was looking at the shirt, I took off my pants. When I came out from behind the desk, I got a laugh, even though we had to do the scene over, end quote. The ultimate moon came when Brando and Duvall mooned 400 cast and crew members during the shooting of the wedding scene. They planned it carefully, and Khan, who overheard the plan, started to shout, No! No! Not here! 
Everyone working on the production and most of the extras roared with laughter. Some of the older ladies didn't appreciate the view. Eventually, Brando was crowned Best Prankster, designated by a heavyweight-style leather belt with the title Moon Champion. <laughs> that is an absurd story. Yes. That, I don't know. That, bring, that brings me to a chuckle. I yeah. like that a lot. Uh, okay, I got some casting what-ifs for you. Okay. Um, Jerry Van Dyke, Bruce Dern, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, and James Caan auditioned for the role of Tom Hagen. Mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Jones was considered for the role of Michael Corleone. How different things could have been. I know. Martin Sheen and Dean Stockwell auditioned for the role of Michael Corleone. Mm-hmm. Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, and Dustin Hoffman were all offered the part of Michael Corleone, but all refused. Oh, I didn't realize Pacino wasn't the first pick. No. They, they wound up working out okay. The studio didn't want him at all. Mm. Uh, a young Sylvester Stallone auditioned for the roles of Polly Gatto and Carlo Rizzi, but was not cast for either. Hmm. That that would have changed his career drastically. Yep, because this is this is a few years pre Rocky, right? Yeah, Rocky's like seventy six, seventy six, seventy seven. Yeah, something like that. I think it's seven. I think it's seventy six because if I'm not mistaken, seventy seven is Star Wars. Seventy six. Look at you go. Okay. So th- I got two big ones. I got the last two are pretty big ones. Because they could have changed. Well, one definitely would have changed the entire trajectory of a lot of things. So let's go with let's go with this one. Orson Welles lobbied to get the part of Don Vito Corleone, even offering to lose a good deal of weight in order to get the role. Francis Ford Coppola, a Welles fan, had to turn him down because he already had Marlon Brando in mind for the role and felt Welles wouldn't be right for it. Wow, that that would take some some balls Mm -hmm. to turn down one of your acting idols, I guess. And one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, because he's not right for the part. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's pretty incredible. And this one is big because you have to think about with this happening, how it allowed other things to happen a little bit down the road. All right. Robert De Niro tested for Michael and Sonny and was almost cast as Carlo before being cast as Polly. So Robert De Niro was cast as Polly. Wow. Then De Niro was offered Pacino's former role in Gang, which is a role that Pacino left to do this movie. With Coppola's blessing, De Niro backed out to take the larger part in this other movie. This in turn enabled De Niro to star as the young Vito in the sequel which won him an Oscar and made his career. It's amazing listening to all these and just being like how, how different things could have been. Yes. It's nuts. Yeah. There we go. That's everything. Wow. Favorite... A lot of history behind this movie. Yeah. A lot, a lot of history. Lot of and history. I, I mean, it makes sense with 50 years of hindsight. Mm-hmm. All right. Favorite quote. I have four and mine, I've got, I kind of actually stayed away from like a lot of the very famous ones. Mm-hmm. There's one in here that is one of the famous ones, but a lot of the more famous quotes in Godfather aren't the ones that I enjoy the most. So my my quotes, well, you'll obviously know them 
I think they're a little different from what most people enjoy. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I can respect that. All right. So first up, the first one, I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna give you a quote sandwich. The first and last one are pretty standard uh, Godfather quotes. Okay. So the first one is Michael Corleone. It's not personal. It's strictly business. Mm-hmm. Next up, this is a, a little uh, back and forth between Jack Waltz and Tom Hagen. All right, so Jack, now you listen to me, you smooth-talking son of a bitch. Let me lay it on the line for you and your boss, whoever he is. Johnny Fontaine will never get that movie. I don't care how many Dago Guinea Wop Greaseball Goombas come out of the wild work. I'm Germanized. Well, listen, let, let me tell you something, my Kraut Mick friend. I'm going to make so much trouble for you, you won't know what hit you. <laughs> you really like that scene, eh? I do. I Good fucking one. love how incredibly racist Jack Waltz is. And Tom <laughs> and Tom Hagen is so calm. He's just like, I'm German-Irish. And he immediately comes back, well, let me tell you something, my Kraut Mick friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I said, when I said you like that scene, I thought that was over dinner. But that's actually, that's, ac- that, that's, that's on set, right? That's on set. Right. That whole... Right. <laughs> His whole diatribe at the dinner scene is another one of my favorite quotes, but it's that one's way too long. Yeah, definitely. All right, my third quote. This is Sonny, and I'm not going to be able to do it properly. But, hey, what are you going to do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get it mix- mixed up in the family business. Now you want to gun down a police captain. What, because he slapped you in the face a little bit, huh? What do you think this is, the army where you shoot them a mile away? No, you got to get up close like this. Bada bing! And you blow their brains all over your nice Ivy League suit. Feel your passion. (laughs) You could have read for Sonny. (laughs) Born too late, unfortunately. All right, and my last one uh, is from Don Corleone. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Cool. I I had a tough time finding quotes, not because there's not good writing in this movie it's all excellent but i felt like a lot of it was very there's a lot of dialogue Mm -hmm. and a lot of these quotes make sense in the full context of the scene but aren't necessarily great like as a snippet on their own gotcha um but that being said i do still have six okay so uh again a few of these are are pretty standard i would say uh first one is leave the gun take the cannoli yeah uh second one is uh between Kay and michael she tells him, you sound so naive, Michael. Presidents and senators don't kill people. And he says, now who's being naive? <laughs> love that. Love that one. Yep. Um, in, uh, in the scene where um, the, the, the lounge singer is uh, talking to uh, Corleone, uh, talking to the Don, uh, he, says, he says, Don, I don't know what to do. And Marlon Brando just <laughs> screams at him, like raises his voice for maybe the only time in the movie. You can act like a man. <laughs> And it's awesome. Um, so you can act like a man is one. I think the fourth one is also is also Marlon Brando. So Barzini will move against you first. He'll set up a meeting with someone that you absolutely trust, guaranteeing your safety. And at that meeting, you'll be assassinated. <laughs> Very funny. And then uh, I, from that same scene, I have Marlon Brando again. I never wanted this for you. I work my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of the family. And I refuse to be a fool dancing on the strings held by all those big shots. That's my life. I don't apologize for that. But I always thought that when it was your time, that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone. Something. Nice. Very touching last scene. Yes. And then the last one I have is also, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. Perfect. Uh, My winner for favorite quote is... Don Corleone's I'm going to make an offer he can't refuse. 
I mm-hmm. really want to say, well, let me tell you something, my Kraut McFriend, but I'm gonna, I gotta go with, I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Really tough. <laughs> I feel like I almost can't take, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse seriously because it's been parodied and homaged and so many different things. Um, I think against my better judgment, I am gonna go with uh, the big long one that I just did, uh, uh, the Don talking to Michael mm-hmm. uh, about how he never wanted this life for him. He wanted him to to do something different. I like it. Uh, favorite scene, I have five. Okay. Uh, I have the opening scene with the Undertaker. Mm-hmm. I have. I'm including this. It's long, but I'm counting it. It's the whole wedding scene. All right, fine. I love the As, witch. So after the, the opening with Bonacera, yep. everything that happens at the wedding. Okay. I have the movie producer scene, so I'm counting both them at the movie set and at Jack Waltz's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the restaurant assassination and the baptism. Okay. I, uh, I have it divided up a little bit differently. I have, I have eight, but I think I have a few more individually chunked than you did. Sure. So it could wind up being roughly the same amount of screen time. I have the opening scene with Bonacera asking for help. Mm-hmm. I have uh, at the wedding, Michael's story about the band leader between him and Kay. Yep. Great. Yep. Uh, I have the horse's head in the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have um, Vito getting gunned down uh, in the street and spilling all the oranges everywhere. I have uh, the scene of them all planning revenge on um, Salazzo, is that his name? Yeah, Salazzo and McCluskey. Yeah, the scene uh, where you just read the James Conn quote, uh, where he's belittling Michael a little bit. I have the final final conversation between the Don and Michael, uh, the one that I just read the big long quote from. I have the baptism, and I have uh, the final scene of Michael, or the second to last scene of the movie, where Michael essentially tells Carlo that he's fucked, <laughs> or or dan- dances around it a little bit, but uh, where he where he dances circles around him and uh, and proves who he really is. I did leave out one big part of the legend of this movie because I think I just kind of assumed you knew it, but since you kind of brought it up specifically, the horse head scene in The Godfather, you know that's a real horse's head, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I didn't, that's why I bring it up. Okay, mm-hmm. favorite scene. Sam, you go first on this one. Favorite scene. Oh my god, I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> um, I think it, it. I don't know if there is a really easy answer, but if there is, it's probably the baptism scene. I'm gonna go with it. It's uh, it's a masterclass in filmmaking, and it makes me geek out. Okay, uh, I gotta go with the movie producer scene. Jack mm-hmm. Waltz's uh, and Tom Hagen's conversations just fucking make me giddy, and ending with the horse head in the bed—it's it, just pure, pure joy for me. All right, closing credits on The Godfather. Sam, are there any Oscar-worthy performances in this film? Uh, let me just go to IMDb. Oscar-worthy, Oscar-worthy. Let's scroll through. Uh, oh yeah, basically everyone. Okay. <laughs> Every, so, everyone is at their A game in this okay. movie. So we do. We did have four Oscar. We did have four Oscar-nominated performances. Was there anyone outside of those four that you felt should have been nominated? I don't think. Uh, so. I, I don't think so. No. No. Okay. No. I think. I think everyone's. Everyone's doing good work. But of, yeah, the main four are all well deserved. Okay. So you do agree with all four? Yes. Okay. I'm a little iffy on James Con. Just uh, bordering on overacting sometimes for you? A little bit. I think that's a fair assessment. I, I still like the character of Sonny enough that uh, I think I, I think I would still include him. I, I'm with you there. 
what other aspects of the film were award worthy? So let's see. We'd have to go. Okay, so costume already got sound, editing, score. Oh, no nomination for cinematography. That seems like a mistake. Yep. So I think there's your answer, right? Right there. Yeah, I agree. Cinematography. You, you listed editing, right? I did, yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Didn't win, got nominated. Wait, did I? Mm. I must have. Yeah, because I was always wondering how it didn't win. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Right, okay. Uh Oh, who forgot to put his phone on silent while the recording? This fucking guy. <laughs> I, I like how I got the same notification over here, too. <laughs> I knew exactly what it was that you got. <laughs> Uh, who or what is the weak link of the film? I have three. Uh, okay, yeah, go. Talia Shire, mm-hmm. the guy that plays Carlo, mm-hmm. and the guy that plays Johnny Fontaine. Okay. Um. Yeah, I uh, maybe uh, if I'm going with somebody who's not an actual person, if I was going to pick one, uh, one member of the cast, it would probably be Talia Shire. Um, some of the Italy stuff we, that we went over, mm-hmm. uh, some of the stuff that takes place in Italy is either a little bit nonsensical or a little bit unnecessary at times, but it's like so minor and so infrequent that it's barely even worth mentioning. Uh, I think Talia Shire is a good pick. All right. Was this anyone's career highlight? I would say, I would certainly say being in the Godfather was most people's career highlight. What are you contemplating? I'm just trying to decide. I guess I can't really argue against it since it's the number two movie of all time. Are you are you saying that you would argue that some of these people would have their career highlight in The Godfather 2? Is that where, where your brain is sort of operating at? Some of them. I'm also kind of thinking of like, while this, this might have been their career highlight, is this what they're best known for? Like, I mean... Like, like, as, like as an example... Like, Talia Shire, in my opinion, in this movie, is atrociously bad. Yeah, I... She, but she's she's actually fairly good in the Rocky movies, so I would think that would actually be her career highlight. That's that's actually fair. I think that's super reasonable as uh, as Adrian. Yeah. Adrian! We should, we should review the first Rocky sometime. I'd be up for that. Yeah. It's in the AFI, so we'll get to it eventually. There you go. I'm into that. Um... Other than that, I haven't seen the two other, I guess, iconic performances by Brando, like on the waterfront and the streetcar named Desire. Mm -hmm. So when I personally think of Brando, actually, if I I think of Brando, I do think of him from a streetcar named Desire because I – that whole, you know, Stella, I could have yeah. been a contender. That's kind of where I go first, but this is a very close second. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. For for me, I even though the the quote Stella is uh, is everywhere and it, it's very famous, obviously. I think, uh, I I think I think of Brando for this one for sure. All right. MVP of the film. Hmm. <laughs> Really tough. Um, I I would say it might be sort of a cop-out answer to say Francis Ford Coppola, only because I don't want to choose between Brando and Pacino. <laughs> but seriously, the, like every aspect of this movie is really that good. 
So saying that this movie is great just because of the acting or just because of the screenplay or just because of the cinematography is a little bit short-sighted. So choose the guy that's in charge of everything, the director. That's where I was going. For me, it was going to be between Coppola and Pacino. While Brando's obviously more rewarded and remembered for this film, I still think Pacino is a little bit better because of the full arc that he takes. But I think it's I think it's Coppola. I'm with you mm-hmm. there. What will be this film's legacy? This film's legacy is the second greatest film of all time, or third greatest film of all time. Second? Yeah, I, we flip flop back and forth, but yeah, it's its legacy is certainly as one of the greatest films ever made, and rightfully so. This film's legacy will be yes, it'll be considered one of the greatest films of all time, and it will also be the film. This film's legacy will also be the popularization and modernization of the gangster film Mm. prior to this gangsters were kind of like kind of looked down upon they weren't quite popularized this i felt really from my i shouldn't say i felt because i wasn't even born but from my understanding the before and afters of the gangster film from the godfather is a marked difference the only only gangster film i can think of before godfather is the original scarface there's there's lots and and they're all from my understanding not that great yeah but this opens up like without godfather there's no goodfellas Mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff without the godfather there's probably no reservoir dogs so it just the influence it has on film is part of the legacy besides also being one of the greatest films of all time yeah that's uh Important to add, I think. Mm-hmm. Would you watch this movie again? Yep. Uh, yeah. Would you recommend this movie to friends? Uh, yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> All right, Sam. Your final thoughts on The Godfather? It was a delight to watch again. I uh, have never really watched it with this critical of an eye before. Um, it's always interesting watching these movies that you've already seen and that you've liked, and actually trying to dissect them. Uh, it's one of the very interesting. One of the very interesting things about doing this podcast is uh, looking at things through a new light. Um, and I, while I already really, really liked this movie, I, I think this time gained even more of an appreciation for the technical prowess of it, the nuance of the performances, the genius of Pacino and Brando. Um, and I think I will continue to watch this movie until I die. It's, uh, it's one of the best and it holds up fantastically. Yeah, I'm the same. This movie is a, a just a, it's just a joy to watch. It's it was definitely very in oh Jesus. It was a lot of fun to watch this with a critical eye, to pick things apart, to pick parts out, to take notes on it. I had a really great time doing that. I'm really looking forward to the Godfather Part 2. Yeah. Big time for me, for me personally. Uh, and but this was it was such a joy to come back to this. I'd probably watch this maybe about a year, year or so ago. And I'm excited to watch it again. And it's, it is, it's a movie that I'm going to be with for the rest of my life because it's so incredibly well-made and so incredibly entertaining and so imminently rewatchable despite its long run time that uh, I'll be watching this numerous times over the course of my life. Uh, Sam, your rating out of five. Now, this is interesting because when we talked about Casablanca, 
which is the other movie that we've reviewed that has a hundred meta score. Mm-hmm. I felt like we struggled to find anything even remotely wrong, even a little bit with it. Yes. Wasn't the case with the Godfather. We were very praise heavy on it. But we found a couple little nitpicks in there. We found a couple things we would change. I'm just posturing. It's obviously a five. It's it's quite clearly a five, not only because it's obvious merits, but uh, just purely for my enjoyment enjoyment level as well. It's a it's an easy five. Yeah, this is a five for me as well. And despite us, obviously, we did find some faults with it. The sheer enjoyment and the masterclass filmmaking school that Coppola puts on here easily overshadows the problems we have with this film. And so, yeah, it's a it's a five, hands down, no problem. Sam, what do we got going on next week? Next week, we're going to be keeping it going. Yet another classic film, episode 139. We're going to keep it going with Godfather Part 2. And I guess I can't really say anything yet, but we're ta- in talks to maybe have a little guest spot, potentially, maybe. It is not confirmed. But it's in in the works to have a special guest join us next week, and Mm -hmm. I will confirm with him uh, over the weekend to try and see if uh, he can finalize it. I think his only hesitation was the availability of being able to watch the movie. Mm. I'm not sure if it's on a streamer at the moment. I think it's it's on uh, it's it's on Netflix. On Netflix, it is on Netflix. Okay, so he won't have an excuse. So I'm going to throw that in his face. Uh, so we'll definitely, I shouldn't say definitely have him, but we're working on having a, our first guest of 2021 uh, next week. So I won't say who it is because I don't want to, I don't want to have to actively throw him under the bus uh, next episode if he can't make it. Hmm. But even if he can't make it, I'm going to happily throw him under the bus and the original guest who couldn't make it. Ooh. I'm going to throw them both under the bus. Multiple bus throwings. Well, now I, now I hope they can't make it. I know, no, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's next week. I am very much looking forward to that. While I have seen The Godfather Part 1 prior to this episode, I have not seen Godfather Part 2. Oh. I, am, I am aware of various things about it, a couple scenes of it, a little bit about its legacy. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I'm going in about as blind as I could hope to for a movie of that caliber. So I'm, I'm really excited. I'm super excited and pumped. I always get I always get just a little bit more excited when we're reviewing a movie you've never seen. Yeah, especially when it's The Godfather Part 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you give us a five-star rating and a positive review, it does increase our profile. So if you have just 30 seconds of free time, I implore you to please do that for us. We'd be greatly appreciated. We do appreciate every single review we get. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can email us at Sam Manny movie podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Manny movie podcast. Thank you all for listening for the Samuel and Manuel movie podcast. I'm Manny Manuel. I'll make you a podcast. You can't refuse. I'm Sam Reimer. Adios.